Fire Tribe, where you at? I hope you're ready, rising from the ashes and it's getting heavy Conspiracies, we got plenty and some are scary From aliens to Bigfoot, extraordinary, yeah, yeah Danunaki Dan and the homie Romy I was bugging out, all the crazy things he showed me Jesus bloodlines to the stars in the skies Always a good time, vibing with the fire tribe Hey, So wake up, wake up, get it cracking Rise out the ashes, I know you got a passion Kick off the combo with theories, many conspiracies Other dimensions, plenty ancient history Fire tribe, where you at? Wake up we about to get into it, I know you can't get enough At home, at work, it don't matter, turn it up Rising from the ashes, you know what's up Ay. Uh, Rising from the ashes Yo, what's up Fire Tribe? Welcome to Rising from the Ashes I'm Danunaki Dan and I am the homie Romy. Hello. What's and up, baby? Also in the house, we got Elaine, who's been joining us all month. What's up, Elaine? What's up? How's it going? It's going. Your audio sounds legit today. Yay. That's hey, Elaine. Nice. Elaine. What's hey. up? What's up? I have a, I have a question for hey. you. What? What's your, what's your favorite kind of root vegetable? Mm, potato. What kind? Red. How do you like to cook it? Fried. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Okay. All right. How about like, you? Like How about that. you, Roman? What What's your favorite oh. root vegetable? Well, it's hard to choose. I go medley. I like a medley. I'll be throwing oh. some beets in there, some carrots, um, some parsnips, some roasted fingerling. Oh, beets are my yeah, But you ain't got to choose. You ain't got to choose just one. That's a great thing about. You asked her to pick one, though. Like, hey, what's yeah, you asked favorite? me to pick one. No, I think I just said, what's your favorite? I didn't really specify. She said potato, one. and then you're like, what kind of potato? Yeah. <laughs> Hey, I like medleys. You like one kind of potato, the russet <laughs> you know potato, what? the 59 cent Don't start your potato. shit. Do, do not start your shit. Don't start your shit, Roman. Do not go there, okay? Um, Everybody I, check out apologies. the I love Patreon. <laughs> we have new episodes, fresh episodes, hot off the press. Yeah. Go check it out. $3. Support us. Like Whoa, us, three bucks. Us. Yeah, three bucks. Not bad. And if you don't want to support the Patreon, please like and subscribe, share our podcast with everybody that you know. Do you guys Join take the just the single dollar bills? Telegram is dope. Say what? Yes. Yeah. We, we I knew, single. I knew Roman that Roman prefers single dollar bills, correct? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You can them crack. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a a small crack outside of our front door that leads to <laughs> oh, the patio. Wow. Yeah, you can uh, just slip slip it on down that crack there, right in that crevice. It's an it's an orifice, uh, like a mailman just shove it in the crack, mm, right in that flat. Uh, I, I think know. that's just you. <laughs> so yeah, this month but, we oh, have boy. been uh, d- d- doing the divine feminine, uh, talking about. It in all aspects with a bunch of different amazing guests. Um, and you know, we have 
gone a lot around the map. We've gone uh, into the world of the Lost Goddess with Ed Dodge on the Gnostic biblical side. And then we uh, we talked with two healers to talk about the goodness of all the things. And, you know, it's been fucking great. What have you guys enjoyed the most uh, so far about this month? I thought this episode uh, with uh, Aurora, uh, the flying rainbow lasagna lady, it's pretty fucking good, dude. It's way better than I expected it to be. And uh, I thought it was pretty informative and different and definitely a different way to look at it. Everything, you know? Yeah. We got to go alien a little bit. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Interdimensional. And, yeah. yeah. And yeah. she seemed like she was stoked to talk on that topic too, which was really cool. I thought that that was interesting. I didn't think that maybe she would want to go down that route, but it was definitely cool to hear it. And from her perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to listen to this one in double speed. Uh, <laughs> feel free to go ahead on your uh, player. Um, and there's an option to listen to it on a, to double speed. And you know what? Go ahead. Treat yourself today. Put a little extra crunchy bits on that uh, sweet frozen yellow that you're munching on. Of, okay. Yeah, texture. Yeah. Bro, yeah. You guys uh, have anything else to add? Elaine, do you have any stories about Atlantis? Stories about Atlantis. Well, you said you, on the last episode, you said that you're going to go talk to uh, somebody about Atlantis and living in the Azores. And I was wondering if you had any further information about that. Yeah, um, I did talk to her. She didn't have too many stories like on Atlantis itself. Um, she had just basically told me a personal story of hers but um what she had said was in 1947 she was which is two years after the fall of berlin which obviously you know the nazi regime was no longer going strong they were kind of all scurrying around and hiding and all of that um but she said that she was walking home one day and she heard uh, army of horses coming so she hid in the bushes and what went past her was about 75 to 100 nazi soldiers on horseback and she didn't really know why they were there or what was going on they didn't even know that there was a war going on at that time um as she didn't find that out till later um so i thought that that was kind of interesting so there was nazi soldiers in the azores islands two years after the fall of berlin and yeah, I, I think that it was just kind of like a hot spot mm. for them or, or maybe they were scoping out uh, somewhere that would be an easy place for them to refuel. Mm-hmm. And well, it's on the way to what Antarctica, right? And that's kind of some history they've toggled mm-hmm. back and forth with about them wanting to go up there and set up camp there and everything like that. So. I don't know. Yeah, well, they, I think it was they kind definitely of do have though. a base on Antarctica. That is a hundred percent confirmed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then there's also a naval base too on one of the islands in the Azores. That's uh, shared with Germany and the U.S. So I thought that that yeah. was kind of different, also. You know, I honestly don't. I didn't know where the Azores were. I yeah. thought you were talking about. Uh, an island within the Mediterranean, and I'm looking at it now on Google Maps and realizing it's in 
islands of Portugal, uh, 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 and they're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like That's North crazy. Atlantic. Wow, off, off, tiny, off, off, kind of off the coast of Spain. It's where many people think Atlantis is because they say out of the pillars of Hercules or whatever, which is like the opening of the Mediterranean into the Atlantic, and then like the Azores are right out past like the two continents of Europe or Spain. And, and if you look at the landscape Africa. of the islands also, it's all just volcano tops. There's no like doubt liter- in my opinion that this, that this yeah. would be part of it because, you know, it stemmed all the way exactly stem stemming from Central America over to the Mediterranean. It's the exact path, you know, like that's it fully. I, I just I thought you guys were talking about somewhere in the Mediterranean. I'm like, I feel like a feel like a dummy now. I never even heard of the Azores. <laughs> yeah, I always thought that the Azores Islands were like remnants of Atlantis or whatnot. I mean, they're all volcano tops. There's no solid island. They're all calderas, um, just big, huge lakes of hot boiling water. And mm. uh, she also told she told me a story where. She said that she always was jealous of one of her neighbors because in her neighbor's backyard or on their farm, they had uh, water coming up from the ground there that was just boiling hot and they could just throw a potato in there and cook it. And she was always so jealous because they had she had to go walk to the uh, shore every morning to get their water to boil, to cook. And her friend had it easy, I guess. (laughs) That's cool. Wow, there's probably entrances yeah. to the, the sunken islands. Yeah. You know, you can like climb down into the crater. Because I always like to envision like Atlantis being captured in like a bubble or something. Like you know, like there's water on top of Atlantis, or like they mm-hmm. were able to go into an old volcano and enter crater Earth. You know, and so that like there's dormant volcanoes that you can climb down into. And enter they put some crazy them. energy field around the entire thing around the entire Who fucking knows <laughs> because the Nazis are known to go to hollow earth like the Nazis were big on hollow earth theory in Agartha mm-hmm. they're the, they're tied to Agartha so the Azars you know have an entrance to hollow earth there would be a reason why there would be Nazi soldiers there potentially. yeah exactly and they were already geared up mm-hmm. you know like there was just horses just happened to be there waiting for them i mean it seems like it was totally set up so i don't know yeah it's interesting because how do you get yeah. horses to an island <laughs> on a boat not hard yeah on a boat <laughs> yeah she said it was big horses too they were they was not like horses that they had there um well they didn't really have horses they had donkeys but um there was no horses of that breed there on her island that she that she had ever seen before and they were like huge horses she said so i don't know i thought that that was pretty interesting story though i thought it was pretty cool it made me reread a few more of my research books that i have had written over the past few years just to see if i could correlate anything with it but you know it's also up in the air and my gut feeling you know is usually right and i i feel like it is so we'll see yeah. Let's try to get, go down some go down some of those holes, Roman. Let's fly down. <laughs> In a Vimana. I'm I'm absent. <laughs> yes. 
I'm down. I want to go find, uh, I want to go down to the, uh, Grand Canyon and, and go try to find the, uh, the Egyptian, uh, hieroglyphs down there. Like there's, there's, we're going big this talk summer. That, you know, oh, for real? Yeah. Oh, wow. Come. Yeah, you should go. Oh, sweet. Ooh. Grand Canyon. I, Grand Canyon. I'm going to say yes because yeah. spur of the moment, let's go. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's definitely definitely good rumor that you know the Fertile Crescent and uh, Egypt at one point could have been in the Americas. You know that uh, there's there's a lot more going on here uh, there, there. than the Ice Age. Yeah, it was. Yeah, in the Ignatius Donnelly book, he talks about how people were here in America way before. After Atlantis yep. is when they went to Africa and settled in Egypt and everything, and and which so, makes I mean, sense for the timeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and if Atlantis was part of the Atlantic and that kind of went to all these coastal places, like we've talked about before, that you know, coastal areas of South America and America and of Europe and Africa, it would make sense that there was people here in America already. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But like this there being like Egypt being here and having like hieroglyphs in the Grand Canyon completely sh- you know shifts a ma- narrative. It's it's really insane, but the the rumors of it like don't come with any hard evidence unfortunately. So, <laughs> you know, there's like a couple clips on Gaia TV about it and then like some blurbs on the internet, uh, but Well, there's people that we say- get down there, you know, bringing up supplies, man, we might be able to find something. Yeah, there's people that say like the Yucatan Peninsula uh, was Atlantis or there was Atslan, which was like uh, the western part of America and uh, all the way over to Texas. So uh, maybe when they say that they came from Atlantis, they actually came from Atslan, which was like a secondary Atlantis because Atslan was named after where they came from. I think it was probably the same. Right. I think well, it was the same. Lemuria? I think Atlantis was part of yeah. Lemuria is supposed to be in the Pacific. Uh some people think it's on the eastern uh side of Africa, uh near like Australia and shit. And, I thought Hawaii might be like the tip of that. Yeah, it's possible. Well they there's large large rumor that California and Hawaii and like the island of California was potentially a big like headland for Lemuria and the time period was before chronologically it was before Atlantis and then the fall that's that's at least what Wajid was kind of saying when we had him on right in their in their uh master's readings it was he uh like they came from their planet and then started Lemuria and then they had like a nuclear fallout then they started Atlantis then they had the fallout and then Right to the third Ragnarok, what have you. And I'm like, I, you know, I can kind of vibe with that because there's even less any like information Info about Lemuria it. out there than there's Atlantis. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's like, totally. it's like really, really, really old, you know. But also, same with the island of California. That's incredibly scrubbed. It's like you find a couple maps here and there, but it's like you're not finding really too much hard evidence that their island, that California was an island. Like 
most people will not agree with you until you like, you know, when you tell them California used to be an island, they're like, no. Well, they obviously don't live here then because I can see it all around me. And I've been told that since I was a child by grandparents and things like that about it being an island previously or it will be underwater again or you know I mean, things living, like that living here on the coast uh yeah there's like a little shelf you know and then it goes down to the beach and everything and then up but up above you can see that there's like mountain areas where other uh where there's houses and stuff now but if you go up to those you can see like fossils in those rocks that are way up there and they're probably like i don't know how many feet above sea level they are six to seven hundred feet above sea level so, I mean, water had to be up pretty fucking high at one point. And for all that water to be gone now would make sense on why uh, why it's now connected to, like, Nevada and to... Not uh, to switch back topics, Arizona. but... but um, and then also that brings up the yeah, deserts, yeah. too, because what were deserts, most likely, but, but areas of uh, sand and everything from probably ocean being there. So, yeah, when I was talking to uh, my family member also, she was telling me how they used to walk down to the shore or the downtown area, which was by the water for their farmer's market every day to sell whatever they had to sell. And um, she was saying that her grandmother always showed her this. uh, I guess it was like a statue near the downtown area that she said used to be covered in water and the water Mm. has receded since then. And that's where the town, the new build of the town was, was at. So she said it was about like a 30 feet of 30 feet descent down. So I thought that that was interesting too, but her grandmother always told her like, don't ever move down here to the city because it's going to be covered in water again. (laughs) So I thought that that was pretty cool though, but yeah, so it's obviously, you know, risen and fallen in in a lot of different areas, but I think California is definitely used to be a set of islands. It's so apparent. I watched a video uh, the other day and it was about um, the rising sea levels and what America would look like once it started to rise. And so it went up like, I don't know if it was like, 10 meters then 50 meters and then 100 meters then 200 meters and then i started i think it was like more like 50 increments of like 150 200 250 anyway it started to show like where what land in the united states would like start to be underwater if the water rose and pretty much the whole east coast actually went under first and only a little bit of california up into the mountain range area um parts of like Frisco and LA were still available when it, once it got up to like 150, 200 uh, kilometers or some kilo kilometers, whatever. And, but like Colorado, uh, Denver, you know, um, Nevada and Arizona, they were all, they're all pretty safe almost up until the end. Uh, and they, the high mountains. They, they went up to like five or 600 meters. And so, if you, if you want to survive, if you're worried about floods, move to that area of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> or a or comet. Anywhere, or a comet. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anywhere over 3,000 feet above sea level. Yeah. You should be good. Yeah. 
Huh? I always said uh, living on the island was like, it's either going to be the first place to go or the last place standing. You know, like, it's like, if a cataclysm were to come, it's just like, hug it. I'm jumping in the lava. Like, <laughs> I'm down. Gonna die like Anakin. Yeah. Yeah. It's a terrible way to go, man. There's only one way to go. Well, there's infinite ways to go. That's infinitely. <laughs> yeah. I was seeing you again. Well, uh, let's get into that. R. R. F. T. A. News. News you can trust. Angel dust. Angel dust. <laughs> All right. Well, what's on the what's on the agenda for today, people? What you got, Robin? Let me let me just hop right in there for you, buds. Um, keeping it real, keeping it tight uh, with the divine feminine for this subject here. Oh, you who fly in the darkened room. Be off with you this instant, this instant, Lilith, thief, breaker of bones. Tonight, I'm presenting Lilith, known biblically, uh, biblically, uh, biblically as the original wife of Adam. Whoa, not Eve? No, not. In some cultures, the earth, moon, and water and love are associated with the feminine and others women and their divine counterparts rule over war death demons and destruction the duality of good versus evil and feminine figures has intrigued cultures for thousands of years in fact the dichotomy of feminine archetypes has provided a basis for speculation and research since the beginning of recorded history Lilith, who appears in the world's oldest text, the Epic of Gilgamesh, is one of the mythological figure who remains to be a point of fascination. She is the oldest goddess, demon figure from the Sumerio, uh, Sumero-Babylonian era and the sole surviving demon from the ancient Judaic tradition. Furthermore, Jewish folklore tells us that Lilith was God's first female creation, Adam's wife before Eve thus explaining the inconsistencies in the creation stories in the chapters of Genesis 1 and 2. As so the story goes, Lilith fled the Garden of Eden when Adam refused to allow the superior position during sex, hence the formation of Eve from Adam's rib. Even though Lilith's prominence has waned over the centuries, her duality and the duality of many goddess figures have been ever-present. In this paper, The Legends of Lilith, from her first mention, Gilgamesh's, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, to reference in the modern era, will be discussed. Today, she's a poster child for a dark goddess throughout time. However, she's been sorely misaligned, for Lilith was not always a dark goddess. Originally, she represented the mystery, the strength, and the sexual vitality of womanhood. Um, <clears throat> can, can, gotta, can I jump in here? Yes, that, interject, baby. That uh, that position would have been the missionary position, yeah. Most likely, yeah. 
Sweet. Okay, is that it? <laughs> okay. Uh, Lilith is the most notorious demon in Jewish tradition. In some sources, she is conceived as the original woman, created even before Eve, as she is often pre- often presented as a thief of newborn infants. Lilith means the night, and she embodies the emotional and spiritual aspects of darkness, terror, sensuality, and the unbridled freedom. More recently, she has come to represent the freedom of feminist women who no longer want to be good girls. The story of Lilith originated in the ancient Near East, where a wilderness spirit known as the Dark Maid appears in the Sumerian myth, the descent of Inanna. Another reference appears in a tablet from the 7th century BCE found at Arslantash, Syria, which contains the inscription, Oh, flyer in a dark chamber, go away at once, oh, Lily. Lilith later made her way into the Israelite tradition, possibly even into the Bible, Isaiah 34, 14, describing an inhospitable wilderness, tells us their goat demons shall greet each other. And there the Lilith shall find rest. And some believe this word Lilith is a reference to a night owl. And others say it is indeed a reference to the demon Lilith. A magical bowl from the first century written in Hebrew reads, designated is this bowl for the sealing of the house of this bar Mamai, that there flee from him the evil Lilith. Ancient images of Lilith would show her hands bound to be a form of visual magic for containing her. Hmm. A vessel to contain the soul of Lilith. Um, here, let's see. There's a bunch of uh, crazy stories about Lilith. Lilith's children are called Lilim. And the Targum Yerushalami, the priestly blessing of Numbers 26, becomes the Lord bless thee and all thy doings and perceive thee from thee Lilium. The 4th century AD commentator Hieronymus identified Lilith with the Greek Lamia, a a Libyan queen deserted by Zeus from his wife. Hera robbed of her children. She took revenge by robbing other women of theirs. Um, The meaning of, uh, oh, the story of Lilith's escape to the east of Adam's subsequent marriage to Eve may, however, record an early historical incident. Nomad herdsmen admitted into Lilith's Canaanite queendom as guest, suddenly seized power and will, and when the royal household thereupon flees, occupied a second queendom which owns allegiance to the Hitti goddess Heba. Well, Lilith, you're a crazy bitch, but, uh, you know, we love you. There's a lot, people. Look her up. That's all I got for this tonight because uh, my mouth is needing some waters. Is it pretty dry? <laughs> yeah, bud. Roman's on fire. Yeah, but Lilith is great. Lilith is um, I actually... I found out about her uh, because at one point I wanted to have her hands tattooed on my body, mm. uh, making the the number three like this. Oh, okay. I thought they would look cool, like some like ghouly kind of hands with long fingernails, some oh. like witchy hands, you know. 
like the hands of Lilith. Oh, you Satan worshiper. And then, yeah, then I was like, ah, you know, maybe I'm not going to have evil deities. Uh, yeah, you're in the you same know, tattooed on my. Yeah. Any woman's you know. hands on you, Roman, I'm sure is appreciated. <laughs> you got to pay to play, baby. You feel me? Anything you can get. Man. Anything you can oh, get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You ain't wrong. It's, a, it's lonely out here on these hills. I'll take this. Oh, that's another big Lilith that she would come uh, to men in their dreams um, and seduce men in their dreams. Um, Yeah, woman of your dreams, huh? Woman of your dreams. Yeah, I'll be I'll be uh, meditating upon that (laughs) before my slumber this evening, and uh, maybe we'll open a little realm, a little portal, and be able to. Whoa. TMI, dude. Portal. All right. Portal All right. Missionary style. <laughs> Missionary style yeah. portal sex. <laughs> <laughs> I cast thy from thy garden. Wow. Okay. Right. Anywho. Elaine, what you got? Who's next? Yeah. <laughs> what you got, bud? Well, we were talking to Aurora a little bit about uh, resonance and frequency and sound and how she kind of correlates her flying rainbow lasagna with a song and, and things like that. And she kind of got into it, which I thought was cool. Um, so I wanted to talk today about uh, resonance and dissonance and how it's metaphysically always there. Um, and, you know, energy is in everything. Everything is energy. And can never be, you know, destroyed or created. It's just always being transferred. Um, but someone that you guys are probably familiar with that worked a lot with resonance and energy is Tesla. Uh, do you guys know any of his inventions or anything he did besides like the Tesla coil or what? What do you know, Roman? Warden, the millions Cliff. of patents this man had. Wardencliffe Tower. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, free, uh, yeah. free, not necessarily free, like free as in like you don't have to pay money for it, but free like it comes from the earth, man, from the earth. Did he uh, did he create the ozonator? Was that him? The ozone? Yeah. Like, yeah, that is one of the coolest things I thought. I was like, wow, that's like you can kill mold with that. Like you don't have to use bleach. You don't have to use any cleaners. You can just ozone it. And just <laughs> that's it. fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. So resonance is two vibrations that match frequency, um, even to the point of like harmonic values. Uh, so a couple of um, instances or examples would be chemical resonance. So that would be like electrolysis or neon signs, uh, mechanical resonance. Uh, an example of that. Like if you were to set like five of the um, metronomes, those little balls that swing back and forth with each other, if you were to set them at, you know, different speeds within 10 seconds, they'd all be swinging in the same um, at the same time. So that would be mechanical. Um, electrical resonance would be like your radio. So you're tuning into your radio um, as it broadcasts. Um, magnetic resonance would be how motors work. So the rotor and the stator uh, being perfectly timed. Um, Biological resonance. So you can resonate differently with people in nature. 
or like green thumbs, they resonate, you know, with their garden, like me and Roman, we love our gardens. And people resonate different with each other too. Um, or you can di- resonate differently with music um, one day and then the next day you're not like really feeling that song. It's just because like your frequency or vibrations changed since then, um, which I think is cool. But um, so like Daniel was saying, um, the Wardenclyffe Tower was a Tesla invention and that was for free energy. And the Wardenclyffe Tower was a 186 foot tower that had a 186 foot ground. And it was 60 foot wide, 60 feet wide. So that was pretty ginormous. And of course, in 1917, JP Morgan destroyed it because he's JP Morgan and uh, free energy isn't a thing that they wanted and still don't. So that's why we're stuck living in this hellhole we are, right? Um, but, anyways, Tesla's Earth motor uh, used magnetic <clears throat> resonance with wired. Oof. Yeah. So Tesla's earth motor used magnetic resonance and knowing the circumference of the ionosphere and the behavior of the lines of force of our geomagnetic field, uh, he was able to couple on or to resonate with the earth's magnetic frequency. So um, he was able to create unlimited power, um, be able to send power to any point on the planet, or you could use it for more destructive purposes, like splitting the earth in half at its poles. (laughs) You know, just depending on, you know, your intentions and all that. Um, (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so if you guys want to try this at home, and I know the formula. How about you, Roman? You want to try it? You want to set up a big antenna at your place? Yeah. We can make some, like, pure mica capacitors and get some, like, uh, copper hose. Set it all up. Just a couple copper copper hose. hose. You see? Yeah. <laughs> I'll take a couple of copper hose. He wants a copper. It has to be hollow though. Yeah. Oh, he wants hollow. hollow for sure. Um, <laughs> hollow and shallow. Something uh, oh. made me think of something when you said it. No, all, it's terrible. This hellhole we live in. What if we all live in inner earth already and we're actually looking for people on outer earth? I've heard this theory, and yeah, yeah. then then there would be that lower people looking for us as well. I don't know. Just trying to go out. <laughs> we're just all trying to do. We, we're all just worms in the. We're all just worms. Apple. Yeah, we're just worms inside the planet. We're all just light the energy. That's just we're just all yeah. light energy, and there's some light frequencies or, or rays that we can't even see. So I'm sure that that's possible. Who really fucking knows? Everything we've been told is such yeah, it's all lies. Everything we've been told is a lie. If you can (laughs) if you can come up with I didn't even know Tesla was real. What? (laughs) How do you know Tesla? Tesla was don't be talking about dude, Tesla's my boyfriend. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I'm just saying, like, how do you even know he's real? I I know he's real. Tesla and Fauci are related. You guys know that? No, they're not. Yeah, they're related. It's such a fucking uh, liar. It's actually. No. (laughs) It's a pseudonym. No. You're not taking it this time, Robin. You got me. Sorry. I know. (laughs) You're so silly. That was. (laughs) I thought the (laughs) So, yeah, anyways. Just wanted to touch on that one a little bit. 
A little bit of resonance, a little bit I of love, frequency. No, absolutely. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Have so what have you built? Have you uh you guys built some some task task coils out there? Yeah. How'd you know? Um, yeah. I just figured you had, bud, because you said you got the recipe and shit. I do. I have the recipe. You want it? DM me, okay? <laughs> You're not going to share it on the air for everybody? Well, I could. It's actually not that big of a thing. All you need to know is the circumference of the ionosphere, which you can find, like, on what, NOAA, like, the weather... The National like, Oceanic Atmospheric Association. That one, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you can find that. And then um you just need like the lines of force. So wherever wherever you're at on your little flat earth. No. You just kind of, there's a little formula, yeah. I'll send it to you. <laughs> no. Not flat yeah. for me. Not flat for me. All right. I got ball flats. Um. Anyways, let's go. Anyways. Uh, so I'm gonna do goddesses of light, twenty plus sun goddesses and their myths by Emma Cotiller. Many people believe that deities of the sun are usually male in nature, but many cultures have a goddess of light. Sun goddesses are more common than you think. This is why I'm reading this because I don't know of too many sun goddesses per se. Uh, I feel like it seems more masculine to me than feminine, but it says, in fact, in Egypt, the earliest sun deities were all female from Japan to Finland. Sun goddesses ruled over the day and were worshiped for their role in fertility and creation. Here are some of the sun goddesses from, from many world religions. Gotta scroll down here. There's Amaterasu. This Japanese Shinto goddess rules over the sun and is the claimed ancestor of the Japanese royal family. Her name means great shining heaven. Then there is Arena, the Hittite mythology. She was the queen of all the lands and the chief goddess. She was the wife of the weather god Tarhuna and protected the Hittite kingdom. The deer was sacred to this goddess. There's Habat. Habat was the mother goddess of the Hurrians. Arena and Habat were assimilated as the same deity. A prayer from Queen Pudahepa says, The sun are to the sun goddess of Arena, my lady, the mistress of the Haiti, Haiti lands, the queen of heaven and earth. Sun goddess of Arena, thou art queen of all countries. In the Haiti country, thou bearest the name of the sun goddess of Arena. But in the land which thou mattest, the cedar land, thou bearest the name Habat. Then there's uh, Shemesh, Shepesh. She was the Canaanite goddess of the sun and the daughter of El and Asherah. As well as a sun goddess, she was a judge among the gods and a savior of humankind. Rituals of horses and chariots were associated with her. There's also Sol or Suna. This sun goddess was worshipped extensively through Germany and Scandinavia. 
Her epitaphs include the shining God and the bright bride of heaven. Wajet, the sun disk known as the Uraeus, is her symbol and was the emblem on the crown of lower Egypt's rulers. As well as being a sun goddess, she was a protector of kings and women in childbirth. There's Sekhmet. Uh, Sekhmet is an Egyptian goddess of the sun. She also uh, she also represented war, destruction, plagues, and healing. She is an incredibly powerful goddess and one of the oldest deities in the Egyptian pantheon. She also wears the Uraeus or sun disk. And we have Hathor. Hathor was a solar goddess and a feminine counterpart to male sun gods like Horus and Ra. She was also a goddess of the sky, woman, fertility, and love. She was often depicted in the form of a cow. There's Bast, the fierce lioness goddess, who is also a warrior goddess of the sun. And one of her epithets is the goddess of the rising sun. Then we also have Shams and Shamsun. In Arabian mythology, Shamsun is a sun goddess and patron goddess of a Himerite kingdom. Saul, similar to the Norse soul, Saul is a Baltic solar deity. Her name is the conventional name for the sun. She is also the goddess of life, fertility, warmth, and health. She protects orphans and other unfortunate souls. She was married to Minuo, the moon god. And we have uh, Grion. Grion's name literally means sun. She is assumed to be an Irish goddess of the sun. Sulivia. Sulivia is suggested to be a Celtic solar goddess worshipped in Gaul, Britain, and Galatia. Olwyn. Olwyn is a Welsh goddess that's, that some believe was originally a sun goddess. This is because she has light-related attributes, and her name means white footprint. Brigid is an immensely popular deity and a member of the Tuatha de Danann. We have uh, oh, Zihi, a Chinese solar deity. Zihi is the mother of ten sons that almost destroyed Earth. Uh, this one is from Finnish mythology. I fuck if I can say it. Pavetar, Pavetar. In Finnish mythology, Pavetar is the sun goddess of the day, light, and life. She spins silver yarn and makes clothes from it. She is described as beautiful, and in the Kalevala, young maidens ask Pavetar to give them some of her silver jewelry and clothes. Biwi or Bievi, um, Bievi or Biji is the Sami sun deity. She is usually seen as female, though sometimes as male. Many Sami live in an area where the sun never rises during the winter. It is obvious then that the sun would be an incredibly important to these people. Along with being a goddess of the sun, she is also the goddess of sanity, spring and fertility. A white animal, usually a reindeer, is sacrificed to Bui during the winter solstice. There's Bila. Bila is the sun goddess of the Adiamantana people of Australia. Many Australian 
Aboriginal people see the sun as female. Bia is also seen as a cannibal that roasts her victims over a fire. That is the origin of sunlight. <laughs> Wallow or Walla or Walu is another Australian Aboriginal sun goddess. Bomong is the sun goddess of the Minyong in India. When her sister dies, she covers herself with a giant rock. When her sister is revived by a carpenter, she reemerges accompanied by singing birds and animals. Uh, Chaksaroxa for the Aboriginal Guanche people of the Canary Islands. Chaksaroxi is a sun goddess known as the sun mother. She was later associated with the appearance of the Virgin of Candelaria. Unilanuhi is a Cherokee sun goddess. She is the healer and protector of her people. Melina is a sun goddess of the Inuit religion, found most often in Greenland legends. She is constantly being chased by her brother, the moon. She is known for her passion, courage, and beauty. And those are it. I like the uh, concept of the them being brother and sister as opposed to always lovers, you know? It's like yeah, they're part of a cosmic family in, in another sense as opposed to always just it being like a... You know, some like weird sexual way. thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So I thought that was interesting because normally, like I said before, like I normally associate the sun with masculine and it doesn't really seem like there's a lot of female sun deities. But then there you go. There's a whole list of different sun deities from different areas. So it seems like uh, the moon and the sun both have female and male. Uh, counterparts and so it seems like all and like we're when we're talking to uh, david matheson he was saying even the astrological signs have male and female counterparts so it seems like everything is androgynous in a way and not really just one or the other and so it just depends yeah. if you're a male or a woman which one of you of these you want to pray to or accept into your into your pantheon of personal prayer and attribute uh, attribulation or whatever you want to call it. There's um, one of these other stories too. I was reading uh, when I was pulling up the Lilith research and uh, there, and it is an, in a, like a, on a Jewish forum. Cause a lot of these, a lot of the information I was finding about Lilith was on Jewish forums um, and Jewish websites. Cause it's yeah. deep in the Judaic, uh, uh, you know, religions and theologies. Uh-huh. Uh, but there's this one crazy story that Adam was actually created as an androgynous body, but had mm. the head of with two faces, and one of them was a man and a woman. It was on the back was Lilith's face, and on the front was Adam's face. And then mm. that didn't work out, and then split and, and had Eve later and made a woman's body. Separately, then I was like, "That's fucking weird." <laughs> weird story. <laughs> yeah, I think it's kind of maybe about 
the brain, right? And your brain separating into two hemispheres and your left and right brain. Maybe our brain was at one point one whole thing and it wasn't two different hemispheres. And later it developed, as it developed, it split into two different halves. And then they started to split the masculine and female deities apart uh, based on that. Because it seems like a lot of these mythologies are all based on human body or um, star stuff or in relation to both because what happens above happens below. So. Mm, okay. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll soak that in the belly here. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but let, let's, I, I realized when Elaine was talking that we, we didn't really give a, a very good uh, kind of intro into who we're actually talking to today on the show. Yeah, let's do that before we get into the interview. Go for yeah. it. Yeah. So Aurora is um quite literally um a walk-in. She is a walk-in interdimensional uh spirit source that has come uh and taken over this woman's body. Um she the original woman of Aurora was uh gonna die at the hospital and she had a super gnarly head injury and then she came back to life and this is who she is now and she has a she says she comes from this thing that she calls the flying rainbow lasagna it's not exactly a, a lasagna as it sounds but energetically it is multi it has the full uv spectrum colors uh of it of a dimension on a on a frequency level and the waves of it and the shape the oscillating shape that it makes is like the edge of a lasagna that type of shape so it's like a oscillating it's basically like a dimension of sorts i don't know it's fucking crazy she describes it obviously you know well because she's been living in it for 20 years so that's that's what I took away from that. What 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 do you what do you got? Yeah, I thought it was interesting too that she said that she lives within both dimensions. Uh she's she's also in her dimension as well as in this dimension with us. And I was like, Whoa, that's a fucking trip. You're like living two separate lives or something. But in her other dimension she's just her rainbow lasagna self, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, when I first read her story or heard about her story, I was like, K-Pax. This this sounds like K-Pax. Like, is this lady real? I don't know. But the more we were talking to her and stuff, I was like, wow, okay. I I do kind of vibe with her now. I can see that. I can see where she's coming from. Yeah, she's very articulate, very well-spoken. And uh, she's very interesting and fun person to talk to. And she has... She gets, she can get deep, man, into spirituality and yeah, vibration yeah. and aliens and cosmos and all that stuff. And it's pretty fascinating. And her answers are pretty interesting too. Uh, so it feels like she knows a lot more than meets the eye, you know? Uh, so her YouTube channel is all like physics and math, like, like quantum math, like yeah. very heavy math and so you guys can go check out her youtube channel and see what she's all about she's about 
computing uh, and getting people to understand the concept of her dimension, basically. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like, so to understand the dimension, like that there's these multi dimensions, you know, she's kind of like here spreading that message um, through vibes straight up. Good vibes. Good vibes. Good vibes. Yeah. Through good vibes. God vibes. God vibes. <laughs> through God vibes. God right? vibes. I'm telling God. you guys, I need to make that shirt. Um, but you got very nice me. vibes. Yeah. Um, no, Dan, you cannot make a shirt that says God vibes instead of good vibes. <laughs> We've discussed this. Yeah, I know. I know. Whatever. Whatever. I do what I want. Um, so like anyway, it's true. Nothing to do in the Cartman voice. <laughs> no, I don't want it. I, have you heard my Yoda voice? You don't want me doing Cartman. Thing. <laughs> no. Anyways, here's Aurora, the flying rainbow lasagna. Rainbow lasagna. Enjoy and Enjoy. wake up. Wake up. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to today's show. We are rising from the ashes. And we, as the Fire Tribe, will rise. Awaken our eyes beyond what is seemingly laid upon us. to the further ends of our cosmic understanding. If you enjoy our show and you like the content that we create, make sure to like and subscribe. Share with your friends. Hello, everybody. Yes, please, please, please do. Also, follow us on Instagram at RFTA Podcast. If you have any questions or concerns, you can email us at risingftashes at yahoo.com. We are exclusively on Altmedia United. Check it out, altmediaunited.com forward slash rising from the ashes. We love you all so much. Thank you for listening to our show. If you find value in the content, to pay it forward so we can keep it going. The grind to find the knowledge of the truth is beyond the veil of our current understanding to share information. Wake up and rise from the ashes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rising from the Ashes. I'm Danu Naki Dan. I am the homie Romy. What up? It's your girl Elaine here back for another session. 
Yeah. Hello. And today Hi. in the house, we have Aurora. How are you doing, Aurora? Hi, everybody. Thank you. I'm so great. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us. Yes. Thank you very much. So you have a pretty fascinating story. Why don't you uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your story, because it's pretty complex. Absolutely. So I am a galactic walk-in. And what that means is that it's been 20 years. It's kind of amazing to me to even say that. But back in 2001, the body, the physical human body that I'm in had what people would say, maybe describe as a near-death experience, but was an actual physical metabolic death from brain injury. And I, Aurora, I'm not actually an inhabitant of this time plane. I'm actually a waveform that comes from a place that is beyond time and space. And I perceived what was happening as a great cosmic injustice. And I came here into this human body through a genetic portal. I'm going to grab my sculpture here. That is called the flying rainbow lasagna. So I spontaneously created an opening through the fabric of time, space, and consciousness And this is like a static object that I'm holding up, but it's actually, you could imagine it as a vibrating oscillation that allowed me as a waveform presence, Aurora, to come into this body, kept the body alive, kind of uh, rescued the soul presence, and have carried this through time for 20 years. I took on the mantle of this person's life for the past 20 years, which is a very unusual thing for me to do, but I did it. (laughs) Did you have a a, a gender specific uh, in your past waveform or? Thank you for asking. So in the place where I come from, it is beyond being a man or a woman. It is like if I turn on my piano here and you play a song, that is just a a waveform. It's like being a piece of music. So yeah, I come from a place where a person is an energy signature that is like a color, a shape, a form, an abstraction. And so it was very unusual for me to come into a physicality form and to learn what it is to be a woman, to learn what it is to have a female body, to learn all about the female reproductive cycle, to learn about human sexuality, to learn about even projections of how people project upon you. Like if you have a certain appearance, how they look at how how one is interpreted based upon one's gender and appearance and then all of the complex interactions that have to do with dating and mating rituals and approaches in this time and place all of that was completely new to me steep learning curve i could tell a lot of very funny fish out of water stories but then some of them are maybe not that funny but took a long time for me to learn a lot of things wow that's awesome um, I had a quick question. Uh, have you ever heard of the movie K-Pax? Yes. Beautiful. Okay. Yeah. This like reminds me of it for some reason. Like <laughs> it was like, like yeah. a other spirit, like coming in and like absorbing into somebody else and overtaking their human body. And then, yeah. So is that similar to that or? Absolutely. That's a beautiful um, shorthand and metaphor for being able to tell people about who and what I am in this world. And yeah, in that movie, it's very beautiful because the the cosmic visitor character that comes into the human body, he travels on a beam of light, not in a metal spaceship. And that's analogous to how my, my people travel, how experts do star travel, I like to say. 
And the only thing that's different is that at the end of that story, um, the walk-in presence walks out and goes off on his journey and kind of leaves the human shell behind. And I, I, that's not what I'm going to do. So I'm very much like a caretaker, very personally invested in the health and vitality of this body and of this life and of um, taking it to its full fruition. So I don't plan on going anywhere or like letting, you know what I mean? Like um, letting things fall by the wayside. I'm like, no, like I'm here. I have a great sense of responsibility, not only to this person's life as an individual, but also and to the human collective. Like I'm here very much on a purposeful mission and to the whole ecosystem of earth, to all of the life that's here and really bringing a message and information that what we do here has profound significance that radiates outward through into the past, into the future, telescoping in all directions. So yeah, I'm here for for the ascension and what's happening on this planet right now. So do you control your um, time here on earth, like in this mortal body? Like, so do you decide when you get to go or is that not in your hands anymore since you've taken this mortal body? It's such a beautiful question. I would say like anything, like for any person that is, you know, embodied, a lot of it has to do with your own personal choices. And I thought that my assignment would be a fast assignment, not that I would die, but I literally thought that I would just come share the concept of the flying rainbow lasagna and be kind of like snap my fingers done by 2003. I literally thought it would be that fast. And I remember creating the sculpture sharing it with other human beings, telling people about it and being kind of like, okay, like, you know, like done, like dusting off my hands. And then also realizing that it wasn't enough because what I really, the motivation for coming here and part of it is taking up the mantle of this life and um, repairing the time field by making sure that the threads of time didn't uh, get cut and fall apart but also it's transformative to the fabric of time for me to do this rectification of sharing this information. Now you could consider it like in the past so that events change and are shifting as human events move forward and things weren't done in 2003. I was kind of like, okay, like I thought that I would share these ideas and everything would change and shift. Everything didn't change and shift. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to have to go deeper. So then I went deeper and I started to make more artwork and become more articulate and share more of these ideas. And then I thought in 2012, I was like, ah, now everything is going to change and shift. (laughs) Snap, snap my fingers. Now it's all going to happen. And it didn't all change and shift and happen. So then I'm like, oh my goodness. So, uh, you know, mission extended. So then I started doing these classes online and all of that was very new to me. Like I didn't know about technology. I had to learn about computers. I had to learn about all these things. So I figured out a way to do these kind of like whiteboard presentations when all all of that technology was pretty new. Like now it's pretty common to do that, but this was like pretty, whatever, almost 10 years ago. So then I started doing these whiteboard presentations as a formal way way of sharing this information because I realized it wasn't enough to just like do a painting or do a drawing kind of present it to humanity and say like this is cosmic information this is about time this is about dimensionality that there was a disconnect so what I had to do was learn how to be articulate in the time place that I'm in and also present it in a formal sense of like 
here's lesson one, and then here's lesson two. And there's a foundation that works up to level three, four, five, and that all of this is cumulative. And then finally culminates in the concept of flying rainbow lasagna and what it actually is. And so I started doing that in 2013. And then, then I really did start to see a shift in human consciousness and a shift in the levels of perception of the people that I was talking to directly and everything. I've been watching humanity level up and it's, it's hugely, um, it's gratifying to me. And I know I'm not the only person on the mission here. And also humanity should be um, self-congratulatory. Like, yes, like humans have done an amazing amount of work at self-healing, um, self-reflection, understanding themselves more, healing ancestral trauma, moving beyond old negative behavior and perception patterns, and being ready for what actually happens when you move into a higher dimensional space and you're ready to create reality directly with your mind. So humanity has done like done the dishes, done the dirty laundry, washed all the dirty socks, is getting ready for the really fun stuff. So I feel like, yeah, it's been 20 years, but we're finally getting to that threshold. And then again, I don't plan on going anywhere, but what happens is we redefine the experience of being embodied. Is there, um, so I, I'm feeling like a, an interdimensional, uh, travel as opposed to intergalactic. Like, are we talking about, um, outside of the atmosphere? Are we talking within, like, how, how does you, how do you remember and, or know the cosmology of, um, this realm, this planet and whatever this is that you think and believe? It's a beautiful question. I don't come from a coordinate in space and time, like not like in a dress, like where we say I come from, you know, Alpha Centauri or from the Pleiades or a particular place like that. I come from a level of dimensionality, like you mentioned, and I'm outside of time and space. And I'm actually there concurrently with this experience and this moment now. So if you could imagine I'm here in this hand having this experience and I'm also here outside of time space and I'm doing both of these things at the same time, kind of jumping back and forth between these two presences. So I have a lot like I'm juggling a lot of levels of consciousness at one time and um, it is an interdimensional voyage, not necessarily a voyage from point A to point B. Mm. What is yeah, your perception of like, What's your solar system perspective? Okay, so this solar system here is a place that has had traumas. What happened on Mars is a trauma. What happened on Mercury and Venus? These are um, like if you looked at the harmonic structure of the solar system, what, where, where there is an asteroid belt, there is supposed to be a planet that's between Mars and Jupiter. Mm. There's an orbit and there is an asteroid belt there. And it's actually rubble from uh, a planet that was a structure that had uh, an inner conflict, basically, and is now a bunch of rubble. So in me coming into what's happening on this planet now in Earth or this time plane, however you would like to think of it, understand that it's like coming into a family that the solar system is like a family of consciousness and you already have had several catastrophes and disasters or like a, a death in the family, a violation, a rape, something that happened that wasn't supposed to happen. And that it's now it's happening here in this house too. And I looked at all these things. I looked at like, that's unfair. I'm very big about enforcing cosmic law. 
that's who I am on a higher dimensional presence, kind of like cosmic cop. I'm like, okay, cosmic law has everything to do with what you send out comes back to you, levels of cosmic freedom, but also levels of high personal responsibility and accountability. And when I look at what's happened in this solar system, I'm like, well, that's not fair. That violence is not right. That's not right. That's not right. And then to see what's happening in this planet and then to see what was happening in a particular person's life, all of these things made me bristle. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. None of that is right. And what I did was I made my own choice, like from my own um, free will presence to intervene and, and make a difference. And that's something that not everybody does like in the galactic world there are different philosophies and some philosophies are based in like a total acceptance where it's like that's what's going on i accept it it's almost like a very um neutrality stance of recognizing that everything is interconnected and that's happening and that's part of the cosmic fabric i'm a little different i'm like I saw something that I felt was a great injustice and I felt compelled to do something about it and to act. And all of these are sacred presences, motivations, and all of these are in balance. So it's not like one is right and one is wrong, but then you always, you take the consequences of what you do. That's part of cosmic freedom. So if you choose not to act, you take the consequences of it. And in choosing to act, I also take the consequences of it. But if I chose not to act, I can see the future from this higher dimensional perspective. And I could see non-existence that if you don't do something about time, time is a living creature. Time is an alive presence, even though we might look at it like, you know, like the hands of a clock or something like that doesn't seem alive. But if you don't keep it in balance and keep the events going the way they're supposed to go, time itself goes out of balance and isn't sustained anymore. And I could sense, you know something, if I don't do something, then this whole entire time structure becomes unstable. And then that affects me, that affects you, that affects everything. And I really sensed an opportunity. You have something to say, I can tell. Romy. <sighs> me? Oh, yeah, I have lots of things to say. I, uh, I, I didn't want to interrupt. I'm sorry. I was just... No, no. I can sense, and I'm also telepathic. I'm like, uh, I, I, sh- <laughs> I shifted my knee, and then uh, I have my smoking hand over here this way, and it was sitting like... Uh, I mean, there's just there's a lot of really beautiful things. I mean, uh, I, I don't even know um, where where to start asking the questions. Uh, I have a quick question while you think about yours, Romy. Yeah, go go ahead. I got a quick one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So is there karmic debt in the galactic universe? Absolutely. There is cause and effect. There's the sense of responsibility for, like I say, if you do something or for choices, choosing to act, choosing not to act, and then the repercussions or the dominoes that fall as a causality structure from what you choose. And all of this is about learning, like on the most pure sense, it's not about punishment or any kind of guilt or something like that. But in the human level, in the religious level, it gets portrayed as that way. But really, it's more of a scientific cause and effect. Um, do this over here, and then this happens over here. And the idea is that we learn by being like, okay, like I did this over here, and then this happens. So now if that's out of balance, let's do this. 
that kind of rectify like puts things back into balance and then everything goes back into the way that it's supposed to be. That's just in the most neutral, mathematical, abstract way. But then there's a great deal of personal responsibility where if you say, like, if I did something personally and I, you know, effed up a lot of things, then yes, in order for me to go on my cosmic journey and continue, you know, in, in existence, I would have to be like, okay, I got to find some way to fix and solve like solve the math problem of what, what has happened and what, what has gone on and um, move in a more positive direction. It's basically like there's no way to really escape what you've done in that higher dimensional sense here in this world, in the world of earth and in this world of delayed consequences, you can look around and you can see people that F up all the time. And you're like, well, that, that guy didn't get his consequences. And that guy's still walking around. That guy's still walking around because sometimes there is delayed blowback. But really on the higher dimensional mm. level, everything is instantaneous and you can't escape it. So you're like, oh, okay, that was a huge mistake. And you are obliged to admit to the huge mistake. And then um, as a responsible presence to say, okay, I really have to do something about this giant mistake that I just made or that just occurred. That seems so much more realistic than how it is here, waiting yeah. to <laughs> receive it later. I mean, I think that instantaneous, because then you're a more true person to your reality. That's exactly right. That's cosmic law says what you send out comes back to you instantaneously and amplified. And that's the way it's supposed to be. But we live in this world here right now where there's sometimes a delayed reaction. So that means that someone, let's say they make a corporation, the corporation poisons a lot of people, and then they make a lot of money and they have a great life and they're living on a yacht or drinking champagne or the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And it's like, well, where's that guy's consequences? Because he poisoned all these people and killed these dolphins in the Gulf of Mexico. And the answer is delayed consequences. So in order for the people that are living here to be able to understand that, sometimes you have to pull away back in your perspective and understand, oh, well, that does end up having causality, but it's not going to happen until this many years later, or it's not going to happen until this experience over here, but it does end up having this big um, culmination. And what we're moving towards in terms of the experience of being here now in body is consequences are speeding up. And I don't know if you guys have felt this in your own lives, but I feel like the difference between what happens from breakfast to lunch is a million years. I feel like, what, you mm-hmm. know, like between the time span of what happens when I wake up in the morning and what, until I get to lunchtime, I'm like a million years have gone by. Like we're, we're smashing more intensity of experience into the moments that we're having than we ever had before. So the rectification, the consequences, all of this is speeding up. Like soon it will be five million years before from breakfast to lunch. Then it will be 10 million years. Like everything is getting faster and faster until we get to the point of infinity. And that's really where everything happens instantaneously. You have a thought, you experience the consequences instantaneously. Do an action, you get the experiences instantaneously. And that's when you're really getting the, the karmic consequences of what you've done. You can't escape. And it means also like you got to take real responsibility for what your mind sends out. Because if you send out unpeaceful thoughts and then you have you know things that reflect back to you, it's like, oh, it's because I thought that. I sent that out. I take responsibility. It reflected back to me. But then you also have the opportunity to learn, like be corrected right away. So that like, oh, I, w- I won't think that thought again. That definitely was a problem so I will think in a different direction and that's how real learning can happen 
Yeah, I think karmic debt should definitely be taught to our children, you know, when they're young, because I don't think that that's something that's even talked about in most households or, I mean, in any religion, really, um, except for maybe a few. So I think if more people would be truer to themselves and more pure, if that was taught to them and they knew, you know, that what goes around comes around and I better watch my ass. Otherwise, (laughs) you know, I'm going to pay for it. With you all the way. And I think so much of this time place right now focuses on afterlife. Like if you do a good job or a bad job, then you will either be rewarded with a paradise or punished with the punishment realm or some type of purgatory. I don't believe Mm. in any of those things. Like I'm not promoting that, but that's what people think of delayed consequences. Like you're doing this stuff now and then you're going to die, go into an afterlife and then get your consequences. And I'm very big on taking personal responsibility now. And I think that also in this generation, I don't think that we're going to have to die. I think that we're going to transcend that experience and go into a different quantum state. I mean, this might be a lot for people to encompass with their minds, um, but I think that we're going to redefine what death is and have our experience, you know, in, in embodiment of the taking the responsibility for everything that we've done and then moving forward into freedom. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely remember a kind of a little bit of a, the, the pieces of questions that was going on when you were bringing up a lot of the cosmology stuff, um, about the harmonic frequency lineup of the planets. Um, because, you know, we've sent, you know, radars out, we've sent uh, monitors out to, to record sounds coming from planets. And Saturn is known to have just a very, harsh sound and a lot of people can speculate that that's you know saturn that's chronos that's that time aspect of like tormenting time and tormenting earth with the paradigm and time that it sits on and it's like there's a lot of asteroids around that area and saturn you know and uh, you know the the mythos of the stars um and the gods you know having massive amounts of war you know and then you take that to be planets and these planets having war with each other on a cosmological sense you know and then uh talking about humanity or consciousness whatever it is because a lot of times i picture like a, I don't know if you guys ever played light bright you know yes right? it's like yes. that thing it's like a, a light on the inside and then you it takes whatever shape that you peg it and those pegs are like the current like outside force of that. I feel like that's our body. And then there's like an imminent light and then some sort of like conscious transformation to ra- raise the vibrations of the earth or something along the lines of that. I'm with you on what you were describing about Saturn, that there's even this like imagery from this time place about Saturn, the God eating its children, you know, like it's presented as like a human being that is eating babies. And the idea is of time devouring something, the idea of mortality, that as you move through time, that you're becoming more decrepit, older, more diseased until finally you die. That's mortality. But I want to tell you and remind you who you really are, like who we are as humans, what is dormant or possible in your genetic code is I call it the antediluvian world, pre-flood. What people remember as Atlantis or a time before time when we were truly more like immortals, that we had these light body presences, like you're talking about light bright. We were really divinely connected. We ate pure light. We ate pure frequency. We didn't eat plants and animals. We absorbed sunlight or sound or frequency or just 
sat on top of a crystal, you know, or bathed in crystalline waters, and that that was what sustained us, and that we had really a planetary invasion or a transformation, degradation of our genetic code that made us into mortals. And this is remembered in the mythology that comes, it's actually symbology, that comes from the Christian Bible of the expulsion from Eden. Adam and Eve used to live in Eden, in an Edenic paradise. You didn't have to eat plants and animals. Everybody lived in peace. Then somebody did something wrong and they got ejected and they got like kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And then they had to learn how to be farmers and how to grow their food. And everybody um, had pain and suffering. And these are like ancestral trauma memories that are in our DNA that we really remember the loss of what we used to be, which was a very blissful way of existing, where you didn't have to toil, like you didn't have to, like oh, so much of what we do now is about, I got to work because I got to pay the bills, because I got to go to the grocery store, because I got to eat food, or I have to hunt, I have to gather, I have to farm because I have to eat food. That's human civilization since we became mortal and have to eat another thing to stay alive. But we have within us this genetic potential that is all about what can what would life be like if you were a light bright a light body right and you ate nothing but pure light that light can come directly into your inner eye your your um your light body system your chakra system and flow throughout your body and sustain you completely and you wouldn't have to whatever go to the grocery store and buy whatever is your favorite food to eat you know but you can name your favorite food or or, or imagine it avocados i love avocados you don't have to go to the grocery store and buy them or find them on a tree it is literally food of the mind that is beamed directly so if if that is no longer a question like oh i have everything I need being directly into my mind, then you, we have a very different motivation. We don't live as domesticated animals where it's like, oh, if I'm a horse, I have to make sure that I put on my saddle and go where my owner wants me to go and they will give me hay and they will take off my saddle at the end of the day. I'll live in a stable or a- any kind of thing like that. I have a little dog, like, you know, a domesticated dog, very, very different to be like, I better listen to my owner and I'll get my bowl full of kibble. If you are wild, you run around like a wild horse or like a wild wolf, and you do what you want to do without being uh, controlled in that way. You have questions. Oh, sorry. Uh, go ahead and finish your, your thought when, when we put the hand up thing. Um, but I was wanting to know more about like your your kind of birth onto this planet, I guess you could say. Uh, as you took the human body, uh, how was that? to how was navigating that and becoming a human like how were you able to do that and what of this person's uh the body's uh i don't know her name per se but her family and stuff and and stuff did they notice like a different change in in personality and all and that kind of stuff or and then you know then how did you navigate through those kinds of things These are all beautiful questions. Thank you so much for asking me about them. I had a huge learning curve because literally when I came into this body, I thought that I was like following the rules of ancient Atlantis. I thought all I needed to do was eat sunlight. Literally for the first couple of weeks of being in this body, I was just trying to eat light through here. I didn't understand, like you have to eat food. Like you have to like make some toast in the morning or something like that. I had to learn about food. That is how... 
um, you know, not unprepared, but just how much I had to learn about what it is like to be alive here in this time place. And then once I learned like, oh, you have to eat food, I had to learn about food. Like I didn't know, like, you know, if you make a cup of coffee, like you have to put some milk in there or have a little toast or something with it because it will it will burn your stomach if you just eat like black coffee. You know, like I had to learn about food combinations and food preparations and things that might seem so obvious to you. But think about what it was like when you were a new human, like when you were like a very young person, you didn't know like what's good, like what tastes good. Like when if you give a baby a lemon and they're like, ah, and they put it in their mouth and they make that terrible face like, oh, like, no, this doesn't taste good at all. Like you have to learn about all these different things. You're not just going to eat a lemon and it tastes terrible, but you put a little bit on top of something and it tastes good. I had to learn about all of those types of things and even simple things like shampoo. I, I didn't know about shampoo for many years. And then like, you know, finally learned like, oh, like you have to get a special soap for your head, you know, for your hair, like the different soap for different body parts that might again, seem very simple but that these are the how to learn how to human. And um, yeah, so I learned by uh, trial and error and kind of like looking at how other people did things around me. Yes, the family of the woman whose body I came into definitely noticed a difference and I announced it to them. I told them, oh, I'm a galactic. Well, I was out of the closet, quote unquote, from the very beginning that I came in. I told them all (laughs) about my experience, all about my journey. And of course, like it was very difficult for them to know and understand was totally uh, un, unfamiliar. They had unfamiliar territory. They didn't know what it was. I didn't have the word walk in. I didn't get that word until 2004 when um, I met a friend. I lived in Woodstock, New York. They eventually became a very close friend of mine. And they gave, after I told them about what had happened to me, and I didn't have the word walk-in. They said, you sound like a walk-in. And they gave me this book that you can still find on Amazon. It's called ET 101, The Handbook. And I was like, I've been here for three years. I finally got the handbook. I read the whole thing. And yeah, it describes the word walk-in. It describes crawl-in. It describes missions, ground crew, all these things. And I was like, okay, like, this is good. Like I got the, the you know, basic handbook information. And now I know what's going on here. And most importantly, I had a vocabulary to be able to describe my journey to other people. So I started to tell people, oh, yeah, I'm a walk-in. I'm a roar. I'm a walk-in. And then after that, I also learned there's all different types of walk-ins. So sometimes it's a human soul. Like there was a human soul that lived in this body for 27 years. And then I came in, but I'm a galactic soul. But sometimes what happens is upon death or like if a person is too distraught, if they're thinking of killing themselves, sometimes someone else comes in to kind of take over. Like I'm going to take over, you know, the job that you were here to do. And sometimes it's a human. So I call myself a galactic walking because I was not a human and I had to learn a lot about what it is to be a human in coming here. Um, But it's not always such a steep learning curve. And it took many, many years for her family to be able to come to understand me and comprehend the journey and you know, accept me as Aurora and who I am. It took many, many conversations. I will tell you, it was not an easy journey, but I'll give credit and respect to her family. Like I kept the door open. I kept dialoguing with them. It was hard for them to, to comprehend it, but now they accept me as Aurora. They're like, yep, we know that you're an extra galactic person and that you're in our daughter's body, but you're part of our family. <laughs> seriously, seriously. Yes. So they did wow. like come to accept you and you have like a relationship with them and they're everything's cool. 
I'm happy to say it was bridges that needed to be built, bridges of mutual respect, reciprocity, understanding. Like I had to come to think of it. What does it look like from their perspective? Not in a bad way, but I had to to assuage them. Like they had a real grief because their daughter died. And they had a real sense of like, who is this person who is here? And I had a sense of like, well, I'm here and I'm a great person. Like what, like love and accept me, but they were missing Mm -hmm. their daughter. And I had to understand and respect all of that. And so like, I had to get beyond my own personal feelings and come to think about what it looks like from their perspective. And then they also came to understand and and accept my viewpoint. So it just is with everything with what I learned with human family dynamics, embody this truth guys if you have some kind of misunderstanding or lack of communication just keep the door open keep communicating as much as you can and even if it takes many years eventually you find a reciprocity and if there's real love there you find a reciprocity find a way to talk about things and be in each other's lives Mm -hmm. did they did uh did you have siblings and stuff when you came into the body or were you only child and uh and did they think you're an alien and like want to turn you into the authorities or something? You know, you know luckily no one, no one vivisected me. No one took me in like to the FBI for an alien. <laughs> the X Files. That's what I'm trying to talk yeah, about. Yeah. They did not turn me in to the X Files people. I'm happy to say. Um, there was definitely some question about like, what, what is my motivation? What am I, what am I here for? Who am I? What am I doing here? And yes, there was even in terms of, um, friends and, uh, you know, college roommates and other people like that, that, were, you know, were connected to this life. And I was, like I said, out of the closet with all of them. And I said, oh yes, this is what happened. And I'm a galactic visitor and all these different things. And some of them were just like backing away slowly, like, <laughs> okay, this is very strange. Like we don't know how to take this and i'm not insulted and some so some relationships kind of fell by the wayside some relationships got put on pause some relationships of people who are very golden like gold the treasure in my life um they they accepted me stayed stuck with me and integrated they were able to accept who was here like maybe they knew me in high school now they know me as aurora and then they've been with me for 20 years they've watched my journey and it's very beautiful to have people that will stand by you like that so just you know my 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 beautiful respect there i know you have question and um I'm, 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 yes do do you absorb the memories like the memory index of the person that you embodied do you have her experiences that she lived through through her lifetime before you took over her body or how does that work yeah, so I def her memories are a part of me. However, um what killed her or killed this body was a traumatic brain injury. So I came into this body with neurological damage. And part of that is brain damage in some memory structures, language structures, and other types of disruption. Just like if any one of you like had a brain injury, there might be parts, things that you couldn't remember or things, parts of your brain that didn't work properly. So I came into a human body. I didn't know about shampoo and putting coffee creamer in your coffee in the morning. I also was dealing with a brain injury 
So I liken it to like this, like if you moved into a house, but the house had had a house fire and there were some rooms of the house that were burnt and maybe like there's books on the bookshelf, but it's not a complete book. So I would pick up a memory or a book or go into quote unquote, the hard drive and be like, okay, like I have a partial memory of this and I have a partial memory of this. And it was very challenging for me because I didn't have the full amount of information that I needed to be able to know how do you navigate the world? Because ordinarily I would have had access to all the education and all of the information of like, yes, like when you're, you know, like you learn how to go to a birthday party, when you get invited to a birthday party, you RSVP and you bring a gift. And I'm like, okay, I had to learn all of that stuff in adulthood because a lot of these memories were um, disrupted. So a lot of the things I was starting from um, in scratch, I started with language from scratch and I was mathematically illiterate because those areas of my brain were heavily, heavily disrupted. And a lot of other things were disrupted too on a totally different level, you know, your body structure, your somatic cellular structure and your energy field holds memories. Like if you have something that is a trauma that happened to you in childhood, like whatever, maybe you fell out of a tree or something like that. Even if you had a brain injury and you didn't remember that memory exactly, but if you hurt your arm, there's like a traumatic memory associated with your arm. And what I could feel when I came into this body was lots of different memories. I'm like, how come this body part is like this? And how come this body part is like this? And I would get all of these memories from the body's body structure that I then addressed because I look at it like this. Like if I come into somebody's life, if I come into their body, if I come into this situation, I take full responsibility. I don't, I can't, you, you can't just be like, that's somebody else's dirty laundry. Like, we're just going to leave that be and, you know, let, let it be that way for 20 years. I'm like, no, like there's something here that needs to get cleaned up. So I actually went deep into the cellular structure, the DNA structure, the vestigial traces of traumas. And I made it my job to heal and resolve those emotional traumas. And that also meant sometimes I had to be confrontational with her family and be like, Hey, this thing happened. I know it because it's in my body. And they would be like, no, we're, we're, we're denying it or we're defensive because that's sometimes what people are like in their family. They're like, no, that never happened. I'm like, I know that this happened because it's in my body. So sometimes I had to have difficult conversations about things. And then what I did was healing and rectifying and restructuring this body. And I also did a lot of healing of the brain injury and healing of the neurology. And that's part of what this flying rainbow lasagna structure and tool is all about. So it's not only I was able to come in through this as a doorway and as a portal, I was also able to use this in my body to heal and rectify my body. And I bring that up because it's part of the message of what I have to share that clearly I walk, I talk, I do everything. I'm not paralyzed. Like I had a really bad brain injury. All of those things would have been a reality if I had not done this to heal and rectify my body. So I did genetic healing, emotional healing, neurological healing, all of this wonderful restructuring And that's something that is available, not only to me, it's available to anybody that's embodied. So you have to know, like, you can level up, you can regenerate, you can heal, you don't have to be defined by the things that happened in the past. And I'm so happy about that, because it's like, it allows me to be fully here and be fully present. So I do know some stories of some walk-ins where maybe they came into someone who had a stroke and they had a brain problem and then they are limited in their speech or they're limited. They walk with a cane or they have some aspect of limitation. And then it's, It's a real challenge. It's like if you're in a car that doesn't drive properly, how do you get around? How do you do your thing? How do you do your mission? So I've been able to fix my car at the body shop, 
get get the uh, dents out of my vehicle and be able to drive through life and been, been doing very well for like 20 years. Oh, nice, nice. I have three uh, questions. Uh, well, one statement and two questions. Um, one statement is uh, a dear friend of mine that I met after he had a very serious brain injury. He went uh, cliff jumping, jumping into a you know a waterfall, and just donked his head on a rock, and then <laughs> unconscious in the water. Didn't wake up for two and a half years in a coma for two and a half years, and uh, you know that's it's uh, it's really like kind of just. And he came back, and you know he was himself he definitely was himself and he was gone for two and a half years you know he was like i am wayne dylan you know this is me so on and so forth and it's just fascinating to think about you know these different dimensional layers that you know can exist and how thin these veils are in between these levels of consciousness and these you know these drifts throughout existence you know that ever expanding, you know, I guess evolving, maybe, maybe not expanding or maybe not evolving necessarily, but kind of turning into itself that infinity time that, you know, the, the goodness of everything all at once. There's one thing. And then the second thing is, um, oh, wow. I actually forgot it after I said all that. So <laughs> I'm sorry. Wow. But uh, anyways, uh, yeah, what, what, what do you say about any of those things uh, have you, in that experience? What was the question? Oh, it was just like, you know, the, the, there wasn't a question in that. Sorry, that was more of a statement. But, you know, that, that, that thin veil, you know, between the human consciousness and your level of consciousness and all these consciousness that exist, you know, the, the, their life forms, this ever expect like what just can you can you paint us more of that kind of visual and, and help us understand how these these spirits and souls consciousness levels work and, and who they belong to oh i remember my other question sorry the human experience um you said was genetically kind of written into the way that we are because there was an anti or the the antediluvian period um and you know just what are some of your most profound ex, uh, observations of the human experience and possibly why it is the way that it is, if there is a deeper meaning to it? That's a beautiful question. Death and mortality really changed our experience. So antediluvian, none of us ever died. We ascended, but that's different than death. So when you ascend, it's like going through a wormhole you maintain your continuity of consciousness, but it's not like death where your body falls over and then your spirit flies somewhere else. And there's not that sense of grief and loss. And, you know, I had a cat and she lived with me from like maybe 2008 to 2017. When she died, I had so much grief and loss and I cried so much. And of course I've had human friends too, who have passed on and died. Like I'm not a cold, unfeeling person at all, but just my cat, you know, it was one of my first experiences of grief and it's really a powerful thing because you're walk- like your legs are together, you're walking parallel, you're in the same world, in the same dimension. And then suddenly, like she got attacked by another animal and then suddenly she was gone. And that's just that sense of like oh, so much loss and so much emptiness and so much crying and sadness inside. And that's really, really different than what life was like 
in the antediluvian world where when you know someone and you're going to live for hundreds or thousands of years in a state of total health and peace and freedom, and then ascension means going into a higher dimensional state, but like you can still talk with that person. They're still there, but just in an intangible, like a spirit form or a pure light form. And it's not that sense of loss. And it's, it doesn't, hurt your heart in the same way it's more like a celebration where it's like yeah like you graduated and you're going on to the next level and like we're still going to talk and care about each other and you know we still love each other when people have passed on but there's that real like gut like punch to the gut like the sadness down in your belly and crying and all of that that's really really different and i had to come here and learn what that feels like because I had never really experienced that. And I didn't understand about how that defines the experience, like parents that die or parents lose their children or what it's like if you love an animal and the animal dies, what it's like to have that sense of loss and grief from something that you love. And then it's not there anymore. That was an education in real sadness. And there are like the lessons that we learn from mortality. It You grow as a soul. Like I grew as a soul because my cat died. I have other beautiful friends. They died relatively young of cancer. Like I could name their names. They're beautiful people. They passed on. I think of them like in a good afterlife. I think of them having some, you know, adventure in a spirit form. Um, but, and I miss them a lot. I'm sure that I've, I've grown a lot from that sense of like, yeah, um, that we walked the same journey together and now we're apart and I still think of them and I still love them, but they're not here anymore. But that's a lot to integrate and you, you, you grow from all of that pain, but it's not like a pleasurable growth at all. And that's really, sorry, my dog is barking. You can hear her. She's right back there in her little dog bed. She's getting a little saucy. Oh, and what's up with animals and, and that, that kind of like stream of consciousness, where, where do those veils lift? So I mean, intermingle animals are also really complex and sophisticated in their journeys. They're like, I know humans tend to condescend to them a little bit, but just because they don't have a verbal language like us, but they are still really like, they know, they remember, they have their soul being refined and like so let's say if you are an animal and you're attached to a human and your human dies the animal goes through grief dogs definitely remember their owners dogs definitely cats care about their owners they hear their um recordings of the people that they knew and they kind of go up to the phone and there's there's just there's a lot there that's it's emotional truth so yeah their animals are very present animals are very um, living their journeys too. So yeah, that's my, my little dog is back there in her dog bed and that's cheeky. And she's totally a family member to me. And she's, you know, a, an important part of my journey too. After my cat died, I got a dog because I had an empty part in my heart. I'm like, I need to get, have someone to hug. So yeah. So she's my, my, you know, that we, having love is about having like a reflective partner, you know, like I send out love to you, you send out love back to me. It can be with a human, it can be with the children or family members, it can be with a dog or a cat, it can be with your garden, it can be with trees or plants or something like that that you cultivate around you. Love is a really, really big, huge part of the journey. And that is um, like a type of nourishment that's as important as going to the store and buying avocados or some other, other physical food that is a nourishment. Do you have a higher power that you resonate with or? Yeah. Thank you for asking me that. I'm very much 
about connecting with God that I define as an abstract presence. I'm never condescending to anyone that's on the human level that might think more in terms of Bible or in terms of a, a human shaped God. But I experience and connect with God as an abstraction, as a higher self, and very much with Christ, Christ as a non-denominational presence that is an abstraction, that is like an inner teacher, and also the recognition of the avatar of a teacher that was here 2,000 years ago. So very connected to both of those presences, but not very much about the human definition of religion or um, denominational worship or any of those types of things. But again, I'm not down on anyone because I think that those are really beautiful tools and beautiful community building tools for people to get together and be on the same page and try to do something good with their life and amplify goodness and all of those things. It's very heart centered. It's very beautiful. So do you have a mission here on earth or do you have a mission that you're like here to accomplish or is there somebody that it might come in down and tell you like eventually, or how does, how does that whole work your process here and, and, and what you need to do before you can leave? Yeah. So my mission has everything to do with this flying rainbow lasagna shape, the portal that I used initially to come into this body, which is a genetic portal. And I knew that I wanted to be able to share it with humanity directly So this is an innovation that I created in the moment spontaneously, like a new genetic song, a new type of music. And the way that the cosmic rules work, when you create a new thought of new anything, it's out there. It's like open source code. Anyone can use it. Anyone can access it. And I knew that in the creation of this. So it's kind of like, okay, like I thought this new thought. There's no obligation. Like you don't have to be like, hey, like I want to go down there and teach these people this song or teach them what this is. But I took that on as a cosmic assignment. A lot of these things, like the most important things that I think we do in our life, there's self responsibilities where you're like, you know, this is something that's important to me. I'm choosing to do this because I want to do it. And I'm also feeling like it's something that comes from God, from a higher presence, from a higher intelligence that is telling me this is something that's important. Like it feels like that's me and this is me in my heart giving myself this assignment. And so sharing about what this shape is, what it's about, articulating it. And the most important thing is my embodiment of it. Because just like if you would say it's a type of music and I'm a musician, what I do is I play my genetic music on my genetic piano and I'm vibrating with this particular type of music and that is how I send it out to the world and then of course I also I make physical artwork and I make physical songs and I speak with my voice and I do videos and I do you know like direct teachings in that way but the real thing that I'm doing is a type of physical embodiment of it which like when when you have an example so like if someone is a great runner they are an example of human athleticism or someone who's a great singer. Like they are an example of what you can do with the human voice. And what I did was I took a human body, the potential of this woman and this person who was here for the first 27 years of physicality. And I said, I'm going to show you what you can do with a body if you do these new genetic dance patterns and you can heal from a brain injury and you can change and regenerate and you can do all these different other uh, amazing things. And then it's offered to the rest of 
people that are here. It's never something that I would impose and be like, you know, like I twist your arm, I'm going to make you do this thing. Cause around here, people make that and they like, I would make you do a thing, you know, like and be mean to you, but that's not what it's like where I come from, where I come from. Everything is like, here, this is an offer. Like you can do this if you want to. And if not, that's fine. Like you, you, it's about your choice. It's about your freedom. So I offer it to humanity in freedom, but all of that is my, you know, like free will responsibility of what I'm choosing to do. And then, I mean, like I'm telling you, I don't, I don't, I don't intend to like go anywhere. Like, like that, like, see you suckers. Like I'm out of here, you know, like I'm done with you dusting off my hands or something like that. It's not like that at all. Cause it's much more like if you care about um, uh, an ecosystem or something, a project, something that you put a lot of heart and soul into, like you want to see it turn out right. You want to see it become awesome. And I care about this solar system. You asked about that. I care about this planet or this realm or this structure of the world. And like, there's problems here. It's effed up here. It's effed up in other places too. There's a lot of healing that needs to happen here. I am here for the healing. I'm here for the healing of this body and this life and what's happening and the family structure, the ancestry, and also human social fabric, human economy, the way that people look at the world and that there's so much that needs to be changed and rectified. And I'm here for that. And so I didn't know how much my assignment would be about this time now, which is about like transhumanism, that the time of machines really affecting humanity. Yeah. All of these things things of how challenging it is because there's Hold on, Roman. there's 5g there's cell phones there's things that are in the human cellular structure and all of that i didn't know how much my journey would be about that 20 years ago but it is about part of that and it is about part of that being here at that time too i'm, I'm not a proponent of transhumanism i feel like i'm here offering an alternative or a response to what is happening in that, like, how do you stay divinely connected, even with all these things with my phone, like you got a cell phone, Wi Fi is everywhere, nanotechnology, all genetic modification, all these things that are happening. And it can be hard to still listen to your heart, it can be hard to still maintain your divine connection, all of that stuff, I feel is part of my journey of sharing flying rebel lasagna like how do you stay divinely connected with all of that i know dan has something to say um yeah you keep referring to it as a frying flying rainbow lasagna and you're holding up the thing that we can all see i was wondering if you could maybe describe what that looks like to people because to me in my head i just think of uh like a rainbow bridge uh so why the lasagna part like what why add that part to it? Because to me, this looks like a, a spherical, almost spherical it's like object. like a toroid on this. Yeah, kind of like a toroid field. Exactly. Yeah. So I was just gonna wanting to some more clarification on that for the people l- listening. It's absolutely a toroidal field that has been turned inside out and brought into a higher dimension. So you guys are all already very smart in that you perceive the torus shape that's in there. So you can see, so I'll describe it to your audience for audio only, that there's two different points, like convergence points. One is at the bottom and one is at the top. And those are violet in color and they represent the singularity or the zeroth dimension or the culmination of all timelines condensed into an infinity point. Mm. And this shape is made from the oscillation of that infinite point 
jumping between these two positions. And around the edge, there is a sine wave that the only word I could think of when I first saw it was, it reminds me of a lasagna noodle. Like if you okay. look at the lasagna noodle, it has that kind of curly mm. edge to it. Gotcha. I didn't have yep. another word to be able to describe it. So I said, it's a lasagna. It's a flying rainbow lasagna. And I know that that's a kind of a weird vocabulary word, but I didn't know that at the time that I was naming it. I just thought like very literally, that's what I'm going to call it. <laughs> and so that's the, the name has stuck with it. Um, but it is one of these shapes that's kind of like a Mobius strip that has the outside becomes the inside and the inside becomes the outside. It's an oscillation and it's also turning around. So it does all of these movements. And if I, I'm, I'm moving my hands, I know we're audio only, but like if you could imagine undulations and waves and kind of dance movements, because that's what your DNA does. Your DNA inside mm-hmm. of your cells is always vibrating like a string and it kind of twists itself up and then it, it uncurls. It's called supercoiling and it, uh, it, it cuts itself. It splices itself. It makes loops. It does loop to loops. It does all sorts of dancing. So, so DNA has behavior. And the idea is kind of like solving one of those old Rubik's cube, uh, you know, puzzles. If you turn the shape in just the right way, get the colors to match. That's how you solve the puzzle. Each one of you has a unique genetic code. Each one of you has within you these dormant possibilities that would be called superpowers, like the capacity to live forever and not be mortal, not die, the capacity to eat pure light, the capacity to heal and regenerate your body from different diseases or or injuries or or even from the aging process. And that the way that you achieve those possibilities is by kind of turning your DNA, like I'm going to turn it like this, then I'm going to turn it like this, I'm going to turn the Rubik's Cube like this, turn it like this. But each person has their own unique solution. So it's not a one size fits all thing. It's your own exploration. So that's why it's not possible for me to even come here and be like, I'm going to make you do this. I'm going to make you do this. Each person has to choose it and embrace it on their own and then find their own unique solution to be able to find, hey, how do I return to being a light eater? How do I return to this divine connection? How do I return to a, a, a different approach to life? than all these things that we've been culturally and genetically programmed for. You were mentioning that you played the piano. I was curious if you had a special song for your fun rainbow lasagna. Does it coordinate with the frequency or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. I, so I work a lot with music. Uh, you can see I have this instrument that's over here. I'll play just a little bit. This is abstract type of music. That's just about harmonics. I don't know how much is being picked up also because I know Zoom does levels and strange things in terms of that. So part of my Flying Rainbow Lasagna music, I do all sorts of different things. I do a lot of singing with my voice that's overtone singing and just abstraction, like and singing up the body and singing that sounds like these tones. I have a song that's, I I have more songs that are more commercial or like what you hear on the radio. And one of them is called, this is how we talk in heaven. And it is basically about that, that in heaven, like I don't use words like this, but we use tones and we use 
feeling states and melodies. So a lot of the more um, commercially oriented, like I make a song that's three minutes long, you know, I put it out on SoundCloud, I put it on Apple Music, I put it in the song structure that people recognize here as musical language, and I use the chords and the, the frequencies that we recognize as music. But what I'm doing is I'm speaking beyond the English language or beyond this type of formalistic language, a language of pure frequency. So I have a couple of different songs. I do have a song called The Birth of the Flying Rainbow Lasagna that is really all about, you know, these experiences. I have another song that is called Grave Blessings that has um, very beautiful, amorphous, um, I, I have my keyboard is set up like a MIDI, so I don't play guitar that is a guitar shape, but it sounds like a guitar, very beautiful, textured, amorphous guitar. And I have um, a song called Creation of the World. I have all of these songs that, to me, they speak about the feeling of what Flying Rainbow Lasagna is. Because when I do this dance with my DNA, I go beyond language and I go beyond my ego and I go into a state of connecting with the entire cosmic consciousness, getting into a higher dimensional state. It's very joyous. It's very blissful. There is some, you know, sense of like, yeah, like I want to dance. I want to rock in that kind of sense. There's also like this very peacefulness, like um, the way that, you know, how ocean waves on a beautiful day or the, the way a dolphin swims and jumps kind of like jumping up and down, jumping up and down. There's a lot of that being a wave form. It's very much about like the coherence of the waves go, going through the music of time. So I, I speak, I speak through music. A lot of my music doesn't have lyrics that it's really just about like I let that music flow through my fingertips and play. And I I love it actually. If I could just make that 100% of my day, I would be a very happy person. Like I don't have to do anything. Just wake up in the morning and just play, 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 play music all the time. I think it would be a very blissful experience for me. Is there a specific Fortunately, it's very hard to do. For real. Yeah. Is there is there a specific hertz or uh, key that you typically play in, your yeah. or that your songs are written in? This beautiful question. I do both things. So I have some songs, like I have a an EP that's called Elevations, where I took my music that's like these tones and just very singing like ah, like very like singing in a very heavenly way with some instrumentation behind me. And that I would say is like a very pure form of expression. And that's tuned to 432 Hertz with the A is 432. But then I have a regular piano over here. You know, I have my regular piano. I'm gonna turn up a little bit. You know, just regular music, the way that we have Western music where the A is tuned to 440 Hertz. So like what I've done is translated this more heavenly or divine language that I'm a language of pure frequency that I'm familiar with into the instrumentation that's available in terms of Ableton live, um, a MIDI um, keyboard, things that can sound like the instruments of an orchestra, like flutes, violins, um, you know, percussion. And then I also, I, I explore synthesizer music too, because I used to be very a uh, purist and I'm like, we're only going to work with analog instruments and we're only going to work with the voice like this. And then I realized, you know something, it's all sound. 
even if a computer makes the sine wave or makes the sound, it's all sound. And then I threw all of my rules out the window and now my music is a blend of both things. So I use some digital instrumentation or some synthesized sounds and some sounds that I run through different processors to make them sound different. And some sounds might be the recording of a gong or a chime that is an analog thing in reality. And sometimes it's my raw voice and sometimes it's processed. And all of it is just an exploration of basically how it makes me feel because music is, it talks to your cells of your body. Music is a powerful way of speaking to your body. Like it can make your body feel, you know, sad and depressed, you know, you know what depressed music and songs sound like. And then it can also feel like super energizing, super happy. It can feel very joyous. It can, it can embody all of these different emotional states. And so I have different songs for different different sound states. And sometimes depressed music is homeopathy. Like you're really sad and lonely. You're feeling terrible. You listen to one of these sad songs and you actually feel better because you're taking in, you know, like a homeopathic dose of the thing that you need. You kind of like resonate with that. So I've gone through painful experiences. I wrote that music. Sometimes I listen to it and I'm like, Oh yeah, I know what that feels like. That, that, that was when my cat died or that felt like that. And I felt really sad and I felt grief, but then sometimes I write a song that is super joyful and that is amazing. And basically every morning I get up and I write music and I don't release all of it. Like sometimes it's just what I do in the morning when I make coffee. Like I'm like, okay, just make the song for today. And it reflects what I'm feeling for the day. So some days I feel super happy and some days I don't because that is part of what it's like to be here. I want you guys to know, like I'm here in solidarity with you. We have these challenges. So I have faced the challenges of the money system. I've faced the challenges of technology and different forms of pollution that are in the air and uh, what's happening politically in terms of, you know, things that affect all of us and different mandates and government mandates and rules that are happening from a larger social structure. All of those things I'm here. in. What about relationships? Of course. Like, uh, like one of, yeah. Like, have you experienced that, that, I mean, I hate to bring up, be super personal, but have you, when did you have, have you, have you dug into, uh, the dating scene at all? (laughs) Not in the sense of looking for a procreative partner. And so I'm coming at my experience of being human differently. And I mean, thank you for your question. And it is a part of the human experience that really defines what it is that mostly when people are in their biological container, man or a woman or whatever you would define yourself as, mostly people are looking for a partnership in a sense of, um, you know, uh, expressing sexual energy or finding a way to make a baby or finding a way to make a family. And I didn't feel connected and motivated in that level because I'm coming from a different direction where I don't necessarily want to make more like baby lasagnas, like, you know, coming out of my womb. That's not necessarily the way that I (laughs) my genetic code. So this is big. There's this type of animal that's called the tardigrade, all right? They're little, tiny, tiny one-celled animals. They're also called woolly bears. And they have this amazing thing that's called lateral gene transfer. So these woolly bears, they're actually one of the few organisms that can survive in space. I think, Romy, I think you're recognizing this. I think maybe you know about these guys. They can get totally dried out, like totally desiccated. You take all the water out of them so they're totally dried out. And then they become kind of like these 
fragmented things. They kind of like break up into bits. And then if you add water to them again, they kind of rehydrate and they come alive again. So they can survive in space. But the interesting thing is that when they get fragmented and they come alive again, they kind of reconnect their DNA and all sorts of weird new combinations. And sometimes they might take a little bit of DNA from something else, like another organism and kind of fit it in there. And it's called lateral gene transfer. So mostly when people think about having a baby, they think like, I have blonde hair and blue eyes and I'm going to have a baby and my baby's going to have blonde hair and blue eyes because I pass down those genetic traits to my children. And so that's one way of sharing your DNA with other people, future generations. But what I'm doing here is more of a lateral gene transfer. Instead of like saying, I'm going to have one baby and I'm going to pass along my flying rainbow lasagna DNA into one baby who's going to get born into the world. What I do is I emit this song and these ideas out there as a type of genetic music and it's going into all of you guys and it is being integrated into your own life and your own experience and your own genetic code so all of you guys and not that i'm forcing it in any way but you have access to the a type of ideas and genetic qualities that I have, you know, I feel like a parent to the world. I feel like all I care about every one of you. I want you to know this in the best way. Like, I don't know what your relationship is like with your parents. Cause I know that sometimes family dynamics can be challenging. That's it. I'll just say that about moms and dads and children, <laughs> whether you are as teenagers or whether you're on the same page, any of those things, but there's love there. That's what matters. I feel like a cosmic Parent. I feel like in coming into this world, I'm like, you know something? Humanity is ready to level up. Humanity is ready to learn new things. Humanity is ready to go in new directions. And I'm sending out this guidance, sending out these ideas. Some of the ideas are about like what it's like where I come from in this more divine paradise state where you know something like you have everything that you need. There's not this sense of competition where it's like, well, I only have this many dollars and I'm only going to share five bucks with you and you're going to have to work for it and go dig a ditch and, you know, get out there and get a job. It's really different where I come from, where there is this type of sharing of energy. And over the past 20 years of being here, I'm sending out these ideas with people just by being who I am. And this idea of the gift economy has come up and it's from influencing humans, from people understanding, like, you know, we can redefine what economy is beyond competition and commodification and the sense of a limited economy where there's only a certain number of dollars and then I'm going to fight with you over it. All of that stuff and that uh, um, approach, it really comes out, it's social Darwinism, and it really comes out of the work of Charles Darwin, Mr. Charles Darwin at the end of the 1800s. And he really projected this sense of competition upon the natural world as opposed to cooperation. And human science is only now starting to catch up and recalibrate and understand, you know, something when you look at an ecosystem, it's not only about the fight for survival and the strongest shall survive. And he who is the biggest and strongest with the strongest muscles will, will rule over everyone else. It really is about all of these organisms working together. Like in a forest, what you have is some trees that get lots and lots of light. They're on the periphery 
of the forest. Some of the trees are in the deep interior. They don't get that much light, but there are mushroom mycelium, this whole network of transfer of energy that takes excess carbon and nitrogen and energy and, and sunlight from the outer edges, sends it to the inside of the forest to keep those trees alive. Instead of being like, no, you're an inside tree and I'm an outside tree and I got all the cash and I'm going to keep it for me. And you know, and you can go stuff it and I don't care about you. They're all working together. And it took a long time for science to get to understand that all working together. That's what gift economy is like. It's looking at the world differently and saying, instead of like, we're the United States and you're the Philippines or you're Angola, or you're this or you're that, and we're going to do this and you're going to do that. And I'm going to steal all this from you. And then you're only going to have five bucks. It's not that sense of a huge imbalance and a hugely self-serving economy. It's really the understanding that the serving the whole benefits itself. That is what I'm about. That's why I'm here as a cosmic presence. That's what I try to send out with my lasagna music to the rest of everyone else. And then I get so happy when I see people being receptive to these ideas and then take these ideas and run with it. And then they're like, yeah, you know something? We can have a totally different way of structuring the economy so that everybody has what they need so that we don't have billionaires on yachts, you know, whatever, drinking diamond encrusted uh, glasses of champagne. And then people get incredibly poor that have not enough water and they're dying of you know dysentery or something like that we can totally restructure everything that is about the way that we have energy flowing through the forest of humanity and that's just one example like humanity keeps on taking these ideas i send out lasagna ideas like hey you can do this in a better way you can do this differently and then people are like yeah we can do this differently i like this idea and then taking it and run with it and it's all done in freedom it's all done because humans are like yeah we like these ideas we like i'm a positive cosmic visitor elaine talked about that that movie capex like, I'm not like some horrible invasion of the body snatchers, like, oh, like I'm a monster. I'm going to come to your world and I'm going to like eat you or something like that. And you can tell from my voice that I'm like exaggerating. I'm being silly about it. I'm a totally peaceful cosmic visitor that I have all of these ideas where I'm like, hey, like humanity, you can level up. And there's this whole galactic society of being out there that do things differently, that are not in these levels of ego state competition and violence with one another. And if you want to be part of the cosmic dance party, humanity needs to level up, which has everything to do with <laughs> taking responsibility, karma, caring for other people, caring for the ecosystem, not poisoning the environment just so that you can make a dollar all of these things change. And I, I just have to give humans a huge amount of credit because I've seen a huge amount of inner growth and social growth and transformation just in the 20 years that I've been here. So 20 years like feels like a long time to me, but it's not that long in terms of human history. And humans have like definitely leveled up and it just keeps getting faster. Like our world keeps on changing and shifting positively. And now there's a lot of people that are having these conversations about how do we have a, just a different type of experience than what we have had in the past? And how do we change and transform how we care for one another, how we share resources? Money's a big thing and people are ready to really redefine what, what do we value and where do we get our money from and how do we choose who's got the money and how do you get the money and all of these things? Because of course, money is like energy. So that's some of these basic <laughs> questions of leveling up in this world. Yeah. I mean, uh, I definitely have a few questions for you. Um, I mean, this month we are talking about divine feminine. 
you said earlier that you know you didn't you didn't come in you weren't uh a gender specific uh when you came into this body but do you feel like it was easier to get your message across being a woman rather than if you were a man I will tell you, I had a huge education in the first couple of years that I was here at how people looked at me because my container is female, that I had, I remember the first time that I was condescended to, and that because I was showing someone my drawings of all these complex time diagrams, and he looked at me and he was like, he literally was like, well, little lady, like, I had no idea that you were so intelligent. And I was just like, that person hmm. had underestimated me because I'm in a human cont- a female container. Like I didn't even know or understand that, that people would maybe look down on me because, because I was a woman. And a big one also was sexual objectification that I didn't know and understand that some people will only, if you are a woman in a female container, that they'll look at you and be like, you are girlfriend material. You know, not think like maybe you know something or you can teach me something or you can do something that's of value, but just being objectified as like, yeah, like your girlfriend or, you know, a sex partner or, you know, you're hot or you're sexy or something like that. Like the, um, the, the least, I think, uh, assessment of what a human being can be. And that I remember that happening too. And I had to kind of recalibrate and step back a little bit and be like, I didn't even know that that is how people would look at me because I'm a woman and I didn't necessarily choose like, do I like, it wasn't like, do I go into a man or do I go into a woman? Like I just came into this person's life, not even really thinking about what it is to be a woman. So I learned so much about what it is to be a woman. And then also women as defined in terms of motherhood, because especially, you know, in going through my, my, um, the age of the thirties, when a lot of my friends and people who were the same age were in the time of motherhood that I learned a lot about that. Like a lot of what women go through is the sense of deprioritizing their own desires in their life because they have babies, they have a family. And in a very good positive way, they are prioritizing childcare, taking care of their babies, taking care of their family and doing all of those types of things and not necessarily cosmic adventures or artistic self-expression or, you know, any kind of thing in your life where you're a little bit more free. So I really learned a lot about that too. So it's been a lot for me to be able to understand, like, how do I communicate with males? How do I communicate with people? Like as a single woman, I don't have a family. How do I communicate with, you know, how do I integrate with human culture and human society as more than just a sex object? All of these things were a huge education to me. Yeah. What is your take on modern day feminism? is feminism has been hijacked a little bit that it was initially of a desire to be like, Hey, like treat me as an equal, but then it became a bit of, um, when I say a hijack, like, you know, there are very real changes when a woman has a baby that you have to be there to breastfeed your baby. You have to recover after a pregnancy. Like it can take a couple of months to kind of get back to your metabolism and who you are and who you were beforehand. And I don't think that it's fair to say to a woman like, okay, like you're going to have a baby and then go back to work in three weeks. And it's like, like your body just doesn't work that way. So in some ways, you know, it's important to say, yes, you want to be treated equally for doing the same 
work and have the same opportunities, but in other ways, biologically, when you have a baby, your body is different. And then also, let me say this, there's a corollary in what males experience that males have been treated as disposable people for a very long time. And that's the idea of war, that this might sound harsh, but war has been around for a long time that it gets rid of or um, sends away the males. Like there's a lot of males, there's a lot of them in the population. And sometimes it would be a long sea voyage. Like all of the men will go away on a ship and they will go away and they will just not be here anymore because we have so many men or they will all go off to war and many of them will not come back. It was this, again, this is like ancient human history but it affects what's going on now. The sense of women being valued because women have babies and they stay and they take care of the babies and they're there making the food and breastfeeding and being able to do these things. And then like the men being like, what do we do with you? You go off there and kill each other with battle axes or go on long sea voyages or something like that. And I want everyone to know like male are hugely valuable and important as part of the family structure too. In our modern world, this is evidenced as males going to the corporate office every day. So if a woman would stay home and take care of the babies and be taking care of the domestic stuff and the man would go off to the office and then come home at 8 p.m. and only see the children for a little while and not be very present as a father. And this is like the kind of version of going off to war or going on a long sea voyage. And so There's got to be, and there's more and more, more equity, more representation, more equality in parenthood, parenthood from males, parenthood from females, and that that allows for more of this redefinition of what family structure is. So just when I, when I think about feminism, what I'm really thinking about is like humanism of making it so that it is fairer and more loving for the entire family structure. Because it used to be that people would live on a farm and you would live together with your family and you would live as part of a tribe or a community. And that all changed with industrialization, where then it was like, oh no, like you're going to go off and work in a factory and you're going to live over here and you're going to sell your time for money and everything prioritized and changed. And then now in the more modern sense of like working for a corporation where you know, you only spend a certain amount of time at home and you have to go off to your job between nine and five. All of those things were like a disconnect from what it is to be human. And then I think in the past couple of years, since the pandemic happened for a little while, people couldn't go out and they couldn't go places. And it was like, you know, something we're going to take care of each other. We're going to stay home with our family. We're going to homeschool. We're going to take care of each other. And in some ways it's been good as a reconnection to the act of parenting, the act of having a family, the act of being with the people that you care about and prioritizing that. Cause I know we all have to make money in this system, but then for a long time it was in a sacrifice of being with my children so that I could make my money. But now it is a reprioritization of being with my children and taking care of my family. And then my money earning comes second. Yeah. I think that that's all awesome. Everything that you said was great. Um, as far as (laughs) the whole feminism, everything and how society is today and how it's, you know, we're all biologically different and, I think that the idea that women should want to climb the corporate ladder and, um, you know, be in this high paying job is very real unrealistic because 
you know, they do want to start a family and they want to, you know, stay home with their kids and teach their kids, you know, how life is and, you know, the ways of the world and teach all the important things that isn't taught in school. But I also think that feminism today is totally screwed up and backwards. Like they demonize women for, you know, not being in the kitchen. And I think that idea comes from like rabid feminists, you know, that is like, get out of the house and work. You should have a job. You should not be in the kitchen, you know, making your husband a sandwich. You should be, you know, make it, bringing home the bacon, not cooking it. But I think today and like today's world, it's just so backwards and I'm not really sure how we get out of this. Do you have any insight on that or I do. what is your I take? One of the best things is that now you can do so much in terms of solopreneurship, entrepreneurship, creating your own business, doing things over Zoom. There are all of these wonderful money earning valid career paths that don't involve having to be in an office or in an alternative space other than your home between the hours of nine and five. And so not only goats, Elaine. Yeah. Goats. It's a joke. It's inside. He's making fun of me because I live in the mountains away from everybody, like an hour away from town and I have goats and farm animals and he's just busting my balls. (laughs) There's nothing to poke fun at, bud. That's awesome. No, 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 no. He's because, jealous. Because when we I were know, having a conversation right? with Ed Dodge, we were talking about uh, before sex was about just, you know, here's your goat, now you're <laughs> mine type of thing. Uh, that's what marriage was back then. And Elaine was and I would goats, do it today. jokes about, about mm-hmm. getting a goat. And so I said... I would have sex for a goat today. You're right. Absolutely. <laughs> don't, don't, don't get on only goats instead of only fans. Got it. Yes. Maybe a horse. Maybe a horse. Right. That's leveling up. Because we were talking about entrepreneurship and, and, you know, having your own business online. So I was telling my sister, don't, don't get into only goats. No, but and here's where my mind goes. I'm like, well, if you have goats, you can have like a home, um, you know, goat soap, like a cottage industry. Like, you know, you can make soap, you can do goat cheese, you can do all these different things. So I actually, I know a lot of people that have really great success by something on Etsy, where they might be creating some kind of cosmetic product or some kind of thing like that, clothing, and then have a small business that you can sell online. That basically through, even though technology has its suppressive aspect in our life. And I don't necessarily like pollution or Wi-Fi or things that are harming us in our physical bodies, but the connectivity of that, the idea that I can talk to people across the world and sell what I make, you know, not just like selling my sexuality, like for a goat, but to make something that is cool and that is wanted and that other people want to have access to and then find my audience for that. That is hugely empowering. So moms and people who want to be able to prioritize their, even dads who want to be able to prioritize their parenting, their family can do things, solopreneurship. And also people found out from the pandemic, 
a lot of meetings that are corporate meetings, you can do via Zoom. You don't have to actually drive to your office on a giant highway, sitting in traffic during rush hour. You can do all these things remotely and then be like, okay, let's talk about the meeting thing that we have to do. Let's meet on Zoom, talk about the thing that we need to talk about. And then we can, you know, whatever, go take care of our children or my baby is sleeping in the the room next door. And that way I can, it's a much more balanced and humanistic experience than this idea of, you know, being um, uh, forced into, you know, the corporate culture, which is kind of an industrialized culture, which is kind of a domestication culture where someone else tells you like, go here at this time, do here. Now we're going to ring a bell. Now it's your lunchtime. Now your coffee break is over. Now you go back to your desk and you will work again. And you are like a slave, you know, working for the corporate infrastructure. Yeah, completely. And it's really different when you're like, no, like I set my own hours and I do zoom meetings and then I run, run my own online business. And like, I know a lot of people that do that and it's a different business model. And I think that it's way more fun and satisfying and self-empowering. Um, you know, last month we talked about the divine masculine and this month we're talking about the divine feminine, but it seems almost as there is a divine androgyny. And it seems like maybe we have lost that in culture today. What do you think about that? I think so. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. And it doesn't necessarily mean something that is, um, you know, like artificially changed or whatever like that. Like no offense to anyone who has changed their gender, but just a sense of being able to move beyond the definition of what it is to be a man or a woman and to recognize that they're like when um, leadership qualities are often called male qualities. That's the capacity to like be forthright, say what you want to say, be analytical. Um, you use um, structured language and that feeling statements and being receptive and being quiet or or um, emotional is often seen as being female. But you know something? Males have feelings. Males have emotional centers. Um, females have a- analytical centers. Females can measure things and um, use um, structured language too. So it's this whole idea of not just being defined by what's your body container. Females can be architects and females can be in leadership roles. And males can have um, leadership roles that involve feeling states. So I've been on some good Zoom calls where sometimes the person who's the leader or the facilitator is a man or male and they're talking about the feelings of everybody that's in the meeting and i'm like you know something like this is this they're emotionally perceptive and using emotional language and it is a man and then i've been in meetings also (laughs) where the person is saying like yes this is the budget and we have this is our time frame and we're going to measure this and it's going to be this many miles long and it's this many acreage of um uh, square meters of solar panels and it's a woman saying that so So it's like now at this point, I think that we are moving beyond like who you are and what you can do in the world is not just defined by what, yeah, what, what type of body you have or. I didn't hear you. As roles. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, Whoever you want to be. I had a couple more questions for you. I know these other two probably do too, but, uh, uh, is there any religions that kind of get it right that seem to have like a good clarity on what, what this universe and world that we live in really is and how things operate and work? Is there anything, any of them that have it pretty close or exact? I am pretty critical of earth surface human religions and I don't want to sound 
unduly harsh because I feel like mostly they are started with very good intentions, usually by very charismatic, really spiritually present people that then when they're no longer here, that it becomes like a, a cult with its own momentum that gets kind of, you know, distorted and pushed out of shape. So, yeah. So I think that like Siddhartha, who is the Buddha, had a great, you know, initial burst of heart enthusiasm and meditation and self-cultivation. And then, you know, my criticism of Buddhism is like, there's a distinction and a bifurcation between like the monks that are men and the nuns that are women. And there's this whole thing of, Mm -hmm. you know, the power structure and all the resources and all of these types of things. And some really orthodox people from that um, uh, level of um, teaching even believe like you can't uh, get enlightened if you're a woman. Like you're going to have to get reborn again, or even the whole, the, the, what my, I will just speak my criticisms because I'm critical of everyone. So I'm critic. That's my criticism of Buddhism in, in Hinduism. My criticism is the caste system, the sense of um, karmic recycling of life. So that justifies a huge amount of social iniquity from the, the Brahmin caste that is the highest and most wealthy to the untouchables that are the lowest and the least socially um, blessed people that they are in such profound poverty. And if you're born into a Brahmin family is considered because you did something good in a past life. And if you're born as an untouchable, then it's like, oh, that's, you're getting your just desserts from something else. And I feel like that's a huge justification for social inequity. And um, I have issues, not issues. I have criticism of the Judaism culture because it really comes out of uh, uh, worship of animal sacrifice Again, this is from 5,000 years ago at the origins of the religion. The way that God was worshipped at that time was by building a literal temple for literal animal sacrifice and then taking like a dove or an ox or a ram or something like that and killing it in the name of God. And that that is not something that I think is an honor to God. So I have real questions about the motivations of that. And then it, Jewish people, to be clear, do not do that anymore, except for some vestigial traces of some rituals, like the Passover ritual contains the shank bone of the Paschal lamb, and the Torah scrolls are written on an animal skin. So there are vestigial traces of the animal sacrifice and then Christianity. So uh, your audience that's audio only can't see that I wear a cross, but my cross is a non-denominational affiliation with Christ crystalline consciousness that is non-denominational, that is galactic, that is beyond the limitations of what it is even to be a human, that I feel that there was a wonderful master teacher that came here 2000 years ago that really was trying to uplift humanity and had a great message. And then in his absence, after he left, his words and deeds were taken and really twisted and distorted. And a lot of it, my criticism is of glorifying death that in the sense of not celebrating this person's life as being a great teacher who did so much and was teaching about humanism and caring for others and kindness and self-cultivation and being the very best that you can, but that it got twisted or turned into a sense of um, uh, being a, a victim, like being like, yes, don't fight back, let them kill you, be be a sufferer, be a, a martyrdom is what I'm trying to say. And even though we put those two words together, Christian martyrs, the Christian 
Christian martyrs and Christian saints who were often flayed alive or had terrible things done to them. And that, that was a sense of a testament to their faith that, that I don't agree to that. And then also the Inquisition, which was, so this was a teacher that came in the name of peace, but then in their name, in his name, was done so much violence in terms of the Inquisition or the Crusades or even the conquering of other lands where those who were not Christian were seen as somehow savage and less than Christian. All of that is a huge criticism. And I think I have, I'm an equal offender. I think I've offended everyone now of every major religion by saying all of these things. Um, So if I speak (laughs) in a more positive sense, then what I would say is what I think is the most amazing part of human religion is the recognition that there is a higher intelligence presence, that there is something beyond the human level that is really intelligent, profoundly loving, profoundly compassionate, profoundly forgiving, and that there is a creator, like a sense of somebody made all of this, somebody made matter, somebody made time, somebody invented the atomic structure and all of these things that are great unlikelihoods that allow us to be here. And the miracle of having a body or the miracle of being born, like any of us that are here watching or listening to this broadcast it's a miracle that you're here. It's a miracle that you have a physical body, that you're able to think, you have consciousness. You are a supernatural unlikelihood that is only really explained by this presence of something that is beyond that we can even define. And so I never take issue if people are saying like, we don't know exactly what God is, but we kind of have the sense and we make up a story and we go into a building and we talk about stories about what we think God is like. It's undefinable. It's hard to think about it. I don't ever want to sound unduly critical, um, but there's not that much accuracy in what's going on. And there's been a lot of dysfunction, but the best parts of religion are recognizing creatorship, um, recognizing self-responsibility, like the sense of cultivating yourself, wanting to be a better person, wanting to help other people, these types of motivations that basically come down to unity consciousness. That if you see, hey, I'm on a journey and I'm emanated from God and you're on a journey and you're emanated from God and we really end up being the same consciousness, but different fractal fragments of the same thing. And then you recognize that if I am harming you, it's like I'm stabbing myself. And if I am helping and uplifting you, that I am in some way nourishing and uplifting myself on the journey. Those are the best parts of human um, religious expression and community because it gets amplified. Like if you get together in a church or in a, a place of worship, and you're like, we're all trying to be good people. We're all trying to help each other. We're in community. We kind of don't know what we're doing, but we're trying in some way that matters and your goodness does get amplified and it is recognized. Uh, yeah, I think that's a beautiful criticism though of the religions. Uh, yeah, it's fair too. I don't I don't think anybody should get mad at you for any of those uh, criticisms. Uh, uh, if, the, if they do, they should look more inward. Um, and then my other question my last question, uh, and then I'll let these guys ask some, um, is, uh, aliens, uh, have you been to, uh, other planets and different bodies before is earth? You're only, only one or, and if you have, haven't or have, uh, is there other alien life out there in, in the galaxy or cosmos or, or however you want to explain that? I'm, I'm hugging you for this question because it's such a beautiful door that you're opening for me. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's very, very much intelligent 
life out there beyond the definition of what is human. There's extraterrestrial life, there's extra dimensional life. My Aurora collective, that where I come from as a consciousness, where I emanate from, is a collective. So it's not necessarily a, a space time coordinate, but it's a group of minds and spirits and souls that are together, that travel together. And we are a conglomerate from many different times and places. So there are, it's like a band where like maybe the bass player might come from Alpha Centauri or the um, guitar player might come from the Pleiades. Every single person who's in my band, that is the Aurora Collective, is excellent at what they do. They are an excellent person. They are have a heart of gold. They are an amazing person on their journey. And they might come from deep antiquity or they might come from what you would consider to be the far distant future. That time, time becomes redefined when you get to higher dimensions. But what really matters is every single one of these individuals is a stellar individual. And then we all work together in this amazing synergy, just like in your body, you have cell specialization, like your brain cell is different than your heart cell, but they work together as part of the same body. That's what life is like in my collective. So my collective travels from star system to star system doing different tasks that sometimes is about cosmic law enforcement or sometimes is about a joyful self-expression or bringing some information someplace or do, doing something positive. And so that's you, that's who I hang out with. That's usually who I hang out with. There's all sorts of different levels of life. There are technology using space races. There are those that do not use technology. There are interventionists. There are non-interventionists. You get it? Kind of like that idea of the prime directive from Star Trek, that sometimes there might be civilizations out there that kind of have their arms crossed where they're like, we see what's going on, but we do not get involved. Like we are, and there, it's almost like a, a philosophical neutrality stance of like, this is who we are and we are allowing, we're not doing, we're allowing, it's a state of acceptance. But then there are interventionists that are like, we do not just let this stuff happen. We make things happen in this way. But then some people have this philosophy of what we want to make this happen. But then some have this philosophy, we want to make this happen. There's exopolitics, just like there's politics on earth, geopolitics, there's exopolitics and there's ex, ex, um, extra dimensional politics too. So it takes a lot of wisdom to be able to see the repercussions of your actions of like, if I do this, this is going to happen. If I say even sharing information, because think about this, if you're a time traveler, right? And you go back in time. And even if you do something simple, like you bring a penny from this moment now into 300 years ago, the matter that you're bringing, the evidence that you're bringing, the concept that you're bringing, even if you brought um, a math problem, like if you went into um, 3000 years ago, but you brought the concept of A squared plus B squared equals C squared, and you bring it to a culture from 3000 years ago. It's not a physical object like a penny or a microchip, but you can radically change someone's mind just by giving them that information. So let's say that there's a galactic culture and they're going to intervene somehow with your mind. They're going to call you up on the telepathic phone and they're going to be like, hey, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And that rocks your world. And then you change your reality because 
you got this new idea, they have to take responsibility for what they did. Did you use that math equation to somehow create a nuclear bomb that then you drop on another culture and that causes destruction? Or did you use it to create like a cure for a disease that then saves many, many lives? Like these are real ethical, repercussive consequences to intervening. So that's why some cultures don't intervene. And that's why some earthlings here or in this time place might be like looking at the sky, like, yo, guys, like we need help. We got cancer, we got starvation, we got poverty. There's all these things that are going on. Like somebody up there, help us. But then the up there people might be like, hey, look, like we don't want to F things up further. We want to actually make things better. So you have to be really cautious in the way that you do things. So there are all sorts of, there's, there's so much life out there and the life is also, you have to understand it's all you. This is what unity consciousness really is. You begin on your own planet being like, you know, that dolphin over there is me and that giant tree over there is me. And all of these humans are also me. And I'm in caretakership for all of this life and all this consciousness here. And when you master that, then you're also ready for the cosmic dance party where you're like, you know something, that group of people that lives in a far distant star system, they're me also but they're me looking really different or acting really different. They might be from a gaseous planet. Like we are from a rock planet, not just hard rock, like, you know, rock and roll, like earth is a rock, you know, it is a, a, a structure. We have physicality, but there are gaseous planets where it's like, it's a gas and everybody there is a gas and you don't have an epidermis. It's like you don't have boundaries the way we do. Things are different at different levels of density. There's all of these different forms of life is what I'm trying to say. And so we have to be able to get beyond what we define as life as just this type of biological container and look at all of these other types of life. And I know this is about divine feminine. In a lot of ways, when we look at the world, it's beyond the sense of two genders that biologically procreate, that there are all of these types of life forms, like on earth, you know, there's amoebas that split apart. It's not a man amoeba and a woman amoeba, and they come together and make baby amoebas, like they split apart. And so that's what it's like in some of these otherworldly places, beings procreate differently and life proliferates differently than two genders that get together and have biological babies. And that's a big part of the growing too, to understand what is family structure when we get to that level. How do you define who do you care for and how, who, who do you prioritize in your life and who are you responsible to? Because we usually think mommy, daddy, and baby, and that's who I'm responsible to. But you change your definition of all of this based on having a different biological structure and then recognizing your soul and your consciousness and how that is all re reflecting and refracting across time. Your perspective completely changes and shifts. Beautiful. Yes. Divine androgyny. That's going to be my new favorite word. Um, Elaine and Roman, you guys have any questions? Uh, yeah. yeah I, could probably, I, could... I got one or two. Can I just throw two out there and then you can go ahead, Roman? Yep. Can you uh, see ultraviolet light was my first question. And then my second question is, uh, can you see others like you or other energy beings? Can you identify them when you're out and about? 
So ultraviolet light, yes, no. Like sometimes I do see the supernumerary colors in a rainbow in the sky. So that's like in a rainbow, you know, you've got Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. But then sometimes in a rainbow, there's even higher colors that you can see up above violet that it might go like green, blue, indigo, violet, green, blue, indigo, violet. Sometimes on really vivid rainbows, I can see that. And sometimes I feel like I can see some other types of colors that are coming off of flowers. And it's it's always like natural things. It's usually not like on TV screen or something like that. So it's usually some natural, really brightly colored thing. And in terms of sensing other presences, it's usually a soul vibration or something that is felt, sensed, not necessarily something that I see. Like I see someone walking down the street. It's not about what my eyes see about them, but yes, I can sense a lot of other people who have an otherworldly presence, but I usually don't go up to them and be like, like, Hey, like, let me put my arm around you. Like, you know, you're, I'm a walk-in, you're a walk-in. I usually wait and interact with people in like, this is also part of where I come from is telepathic. So being a telepathic society, which is what earth is starting to level up to, it's just like having levels of boundary and respect where, you know, you have a mind presence and you can reach out and feel someone else. But just like with our hands, like we don't just go around like grabbing other people's bodies and being like Hong Kong, like I'm going to touch your body and touch you. Like that's considered really rude and going against boundaries and maybe even a little bit of an assault. It's the same thing with my mind. Like I can reach out to other people's minds and their energy fields. I can scan people. I can touch them. I can go inside of their minds, but I don't because I'm hugely respectful of boundaries and consent is a big part of what the higher dimensional levels of being are like and what it is like to be a good galactic citizen. So even if I, if I am, if I'm aware of someone's presence physically or non-physically, I ask for consent, which is kind of like knock, 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 like, Hey, I'm here. I would love to talk with your mind. Is it okay if I talk? And if they're not into it, it's like, that's okay. Not a good time. Or maybe another time. And then there's a big difference between public versus private. So in, um, let's say in my house is a good example. The sidewalk in front of my house is public. If I'm out there, it means I'm available to the public. Walk on up to me and talk to me. But if I'm in my courtyard, that is only for invited guests. You have to come inside of my courtyard. And then in my house, this is my living room. This is public. Like I'll show this on the internet. We can have a camera here, but my bedroom like that is private. And then of course, like my bathroom, like that's the ultimate private place where private things happen in the mind, in a telepathic society, there's public areas where it's like, these are my thought forms that are quote unquote, available to the public. Then there are places only for invited guests. Then there are places that are intimate places where it's like, oh no, like you have to get to know me and get a real invitation to be able to go in there. And then there are places that are my completely private interior spaces where it's like, no, like I don't share that with anyone except like maybe a very, very trusted person. Like, I don't know who would you, who would you want to be in the bathroom with you? Like only a very, very trusted person. You know what I mean? For that, that type of, um, yeah, vulnerability and um, sharing on that level. So when I sense another person, 
an earth native or a non-native person it's always like hey knock 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 want to have an interaction and then I wait and see what level of interaction they want to have and how much they want to share and how much they want to connect with me and then go from there that's very similar to the Reiki um, perspective on things where you have to ask permission to heal their chakras or energy or whatnot whatever you're working on with that person great respect for Reiki. And I think it's a beautiful system and the value system that it's about and everything about consent and even being part of a network, but also you maintain your individuality, like your own firewalls, your own protection, because you don't want to have someone else's disease or problems come into you. So you're sending it through and it's, it's something that's coming through you. Like it very much represents a lot of the cosmic values, cosmic law values that I represent in my, from my collective and in my actions and my embodiment here. That's beautiful. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Wow. Um, I'm going to ask, yeah, I guess I'll just stick to the, uh, the rhythm of the twos. I'm just going to ask a couple questions here. Um, well, do you think we should expect more walk-ins um, at some at some point? Maybe there's like a like a congregation or something coming to um, Earth to to help spread the light more. Because um, I I feel like like we brought up earlier in the conversation that there's absolutely a brighter light being shined through time and time. And uh, I'm wondering if um, are maybe we should see a flood of walk-ins soon. That's a beautiful question. And I'm smiling while you say it. The answer is a big yes. And also what it is to be a walk-in is being redefined. So I sometimes I call it ground crew. Like there's a lot of people that are coming in at this time. Some people are being born in like the traditional human sense. Like they come in as little children. And I've done a lot of babysitting and professional nanny work where I'm like, like this kid is ground crew and you can kind of feel it. And you can kind of sense it. <laughs> And also the modality of what it takes to be a walk-in is kind of changing. So I came in 20 years ago, brain injury, something that was bad enough to be able to kill a person. And I came into this body and there are walk-ins that are older than me, or they came in in previous decades. And it was usually something really harsh, like head first through a windshield or, you know, some kind of drowning accident or something like that. Since I've come in 20 years ago, it seems like the journey has become a little bit easier where some people don't have to have a huge disease or catastrophe in their body, but that they're able to do a gentle walkout and then have their next uh, driver of the car come in without having to crash the car completely. So I know a couple of people that describe themselves as walk-ins and that's what their journey is more like. So I think that the journey of being a walk-in has become more, more possible. Like the doorway is easier now to get through that. You don't have to have like a whole death and a catastrophe that sometimes people make an agreement where their the original soul or ego presence is leaving and then someone new is coming in. And I even know a couple of people that have had multiple changes in drivers 
in their life and in their body, which again, it's hard for me to imagine because it took me a long time to figure out like shampoo and, you know, food and all of those things. I'm like, you know, it took me five years to figure out these things. Um, but with wow. them, maybe it was a little bit easier. Maybe they had less of a steep learning curve. But yeah, I know some people that have had like different, um, whatever you would call it, like uh, administration, like the presidential administration, like, okay, like that guy was there from 2004 to 2008. And then a new guy was there from 2008 to 2012. And then a new guy came in. Um, so people have their own unique experiences, but I definitely will tell you, I feel more and more light, light beings, light workers, light presences being here and really people being active on their mission where, where they know like, like I'm here for a purpose. I'm here for a purpose beyond the mere commodification, like more than just earning money, more than just, you know, trying to work for uncle Sam or pay my taxes or do whatever the government tells me to do that people are here like on personal missions or spiritual missions that are significant to them mm. personally. So my other question is, thank you so much. Uh, that's, that's, that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> and I, I feel it. And so I'm ready for the transition and, you know, like I don't, I don't grit my teeth too hard on, on current society because it's just doesn't, it's not real to me really. Like it just, it's not how I see reality at all. So, you know, I think it's a fun thing that's happening for a lot of people. And I'm really glad that, you know, we're all here in it together, but it's not for me. Uh, I'm ready for this transition and, uh, and, and here with open arms. And so my other question is, is I'm fascinated by history and a lot of the show, we go into some deep ancient history. And I feel like at one time, definitely in the antediluvian Atlantean period, there was, you know, access to ether physics and the earth's electromagnetic system, uh, and grid. And I'm wondering, um, just like, if there's like a collective consciousness, uh, you know, that is kind of known, like Earth has this ether physics, like electromagnetic, like the ability to tap in to the dimensional field here. And if humans are able to teleport and were able to at one point, is that information being occultically suppressed or what have you, like your opinion on that? And the maybe if you know anything about the use of old cathedrals and if they have more than a purpose than what we're being told such a beautiful question in the antediluvian time we used energy differently because we didn't necessarily have to have like here i have like my led light bulb to light up my house and to be able to have electrons lighting up my computer like if we wanted to have this conversation in the antediluvian world we would be able to do it through direct telepathy and we would pretty much be in a different type of space than a, 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 an apartment or a home that needs an electric light or anything like that. Like our lives were different then in the time of being a mortals, like since death was invented, there were ancient times, like what we would call um, ancient Egypt, when the pyramid structure literally was an emitter of this type of energy that not only could power a light bulb, but would also help to raise your consciousness. And these were transformative energies that helped to take the potential humans out of a state of, for lack of a better word, barbarity, like this barbarian state of darkness and let's say uncultivated, turn them into cultivated people. So ancient Egypt was one of these places where there was a lot of extraterrestrial influence 
positive uses of technology that were done to give people things like um, clean technology that is for healing, for lighting places, for utilizing stuff, but mostly for uplifting the mind. And when you're talking about cathedrals and other, some of these spires and some of these other pyramid shapes, they are collectors and transmitters of this energy. It's earth energy, it's cosmic energy, it's pure consciousness energy. And it is about becoming basically smarter. It makes you smarter when you're in that energy field. Mm -hmm. And it also makes you more kind, more loving loving, more present. That's what I mean by non-barbarian. So this is really different. Like I can be a barbarian, even with my LED light switch on over here, but I can see what I'm doing. Like I have my, my, whatever, my battle axe, and I can see the violence that I'm doing to other people. Very, very different than when you're being bathed in this energy that is an energy of pure uplift that not only can create a glow that your eyes can see with light, but that also it really changes your heart space. It really changes how you feel and relate to other people and other life forms. So this is a really different prioritization of energy, that if we look at the energy of the sun or the energy of the earth or the energy of the pure cosmos, and what some people are looking at now and calling zero point energy, which is kind of the use of magnetism, it's beyond just the idea of an LED light bulb. When you start to really go into these higher math understandings and connections with the phenomenological aspect of energy, it's beyond just a dead science type of thing where it's like, you know, just a bunch of dead electrons flowing in a wire. Who really cares about it? It becomes about energy yeah. as an alive presence and that the energy is something that we respect as being alive, that keeps us alive, that life force. We're looking at energy as life force and not just something to exploit and commodify. And so this is a change in our whole entire world. Like in our world right now, we exploit and we commodify animals in farming. We exploit and we commodify plants. We think like I will grow a big giant field of corn and then I can turn it all into gasohol and I can use it to power my engine and my turbine and I can get energy out of it. And we don't think like, how does the corn feel? How does it, what is its mind state like growing? What is its life like growing out there? Does it want to be used in this way? It's a very limited, nearsighted and self-serving way of using and exploiting resources. And if you contrast that with what I've been talking about, which is this more ancient, divinely connected way of looking at energy as an expression of life force and to say, hmm, this is energy that is the potential of consciousness and that it is a, a light, like Light is about enlightenment. It is about ideas, information, data, wisdom, knowingness, more than just um, I can see in the dark. It is more about having a sense of being informed and being wise and being guided. That's what we're really supposed to be experiencing. So no offense to anyone that's from this time and place, but mostly we've been getting this type of light that's like very uninformative, you know, like an electric light bulb or something that is an fluorescent light light tube or Mm -hmm. something like that. It doesn't really give us wisdom. Think about this. Like if you grow plants under a hydroponic system, and they never get the natural sunlight. They're just getting certain frequencies from the, the fluorescent lights, but they're not really getting the information that comes from the sun. But if you're outside 
growing in a field, then you're like, okay, I'm getting information from the sun and I learn from the sun and I learn from the exposure to that, that consciousness presence. So that's what we, we humans need to be exposed to natural light. We need to know what real life force is. We need to be able to have times and places where we're not constantly inundated by computers, Wi-Fi signals, and all of that type of stuff. Cause that's its own particular frequency. Sometimes we just need to be away from it. And like, it's been a long time since maybe like, um, I remember what it was like in 2003 when I lived in Woodstock, New York, and they first put up a cell phone tower there. And before that happened, I felt like I could talk mind to mind with other people and hear them very easily. Then they put up the cell phone tower in our town. And I remember like, well, now the cell phones worked, but I couldn't hear other people very easily with my mind. And that was like, whatever, 17 or 18. 18 or 19 years ago. So for everybody that's been living since that time, it's just been very challenging because we don't get a real opportunity to be like, let's have a conversation with a tree. Let's have a conversation with the human telepathically. Let's feel what the, the, the ecosystem structure feels like without all of the cell phone, Wi-Fi, electrical, which are basically just like distractions. But we just, we don't have an off switch. If you could just turn it off for a little while, then it would be like, oh, like that's what that feels like. And I have experimented going to different places where it's like, I'll go to some place where it's away from all the technology, but there's satellites You know what I mean? There's still this presence. You can't get away from it. Even if you go to Costa Rica, there are some places where it's like, yeah, like we'll go to the middle of the jungle, go to the forest. I've been to different places and it still was not as quiet as I really wanted it to be. So I'm not complaining, but I'm just informing everyone that that is what we need a return to. And that I think Mm -hmm. that we get that. And it doesn't have to be from a catastrophe, but we'll just get the off switch where it's like, let's just turn off this stuff for a little while and just feel what it feels like in your heart and feel what it feels like in your energy system. And you might be amazed at the connectivity. Like you can talk to a mushroom and you can connect into the soil of this whole mycelial network and feel what it feels like to talk to a tree and feel what it feels like to whatever, talk to an ant. And they, they, are, they are all on a completely different Wi-Fi system then we are there on the natural Wi-Fi. The, the, the intelligence of nature is profound and it's connected to the sun and the stars and it's connected to galaxies and black holes and otherworldly presences. Yeah. Coconut wireless. Oh <laughs> uh, man. Beautiful. Um, does anybody have any final thoughts before we wrap it up right here? Uh, or Laura or Aurora, do you have any final things to say to us? Maybe we didn't ask you and there's something else that you wanted to tell us. I just want to, I want to thank you for the pro- profundity and the perception of all of your questions. I think that all three of you have asked me like the most amazing questions and I've enjoyed sharing my perspective with you so much. So yes, I'm, I'm like, I'm <laughs> hugging you through the screen and appreciating <laughs> you so much for all of this connection. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Um, Elaine, did you have anything to say? Just thank you for coming on and sharing all your knowledge with us. It was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, uh, could you tell the people where to find you, Aurora? Absolutely. I think the easiest thing is to just do a keyword search for three words using a search engine on the internet. (laughs) 
flying like a bird flies in the sky, rainbow lasagna. And I spell lasagna with an E on the end, L-A-S-A-G-N-E. So I have a website. You can definitely find my website, but I also have a YouTube channel. And my YouTube channel has a lot of my ongoing lecture series where I talk all about um, math concepts of like higher dimensional math and quantum physics mm. and times and ti- timeline and um, genetic restructuring with the flying rainbow lasagna. You, if you find my YouTube channel or do the search, you'll also find some of my music. Like I said, um, Birth of the Flying Rainbow Lasagna is a good album to look for because there's a lot of other artists named Delora, so it just might be hard to find me mm-hmm. but if you do an album search for like birth of the flying rainbow lasagna you'll find my music then you can check me out on that sense um i have so many different things that are going on all the time i'm on i do facebook and i do instagram i do all of these things where you can find what i'm sharing so i owe every month i do something different i have a different ongoing workshop series like right now i'm doing vocal toning where it's just using the abstract tones of your voice and singing into the chakras or energy centers of your body i do that you know always a new offering in that sense always new artistic projects like i have always new paintings that are going on and i'm 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 almost at a loss like there's there's so many different things that i'm always doing um but yeah you can check out my website for what's going on and um then yes i would just say do do you'll find me i'm the only flying rainbow lasagna out there you'll find me (laughs) (laughs) have you ever thought about writing a book I have. And you know something? For a long time, I didn't feel that comfortable with writing words. I did a lot more of like pictures. Mm-hmm. So I do, I have an art book that I did and have it oh, on. Excellent. But only this year did I start. I went to a very isolated place in Oregon and I thought at first. First, I thought I was going to write a science fiction book and put a lot of things into like the fictional context of a science fiction story. But then what I ended up doing was writing more of a philosophical kind of essay about what flying rainbow lasagna is. And that was really like it took a long time for me to be able to articulate it and put it into words. That is maybe the beginning of a book or something that will be maybe a documentary video series or something like that. So, yeah, Writing is only now starting to open up for me as a form of self-expression, but maybe, maybe soon a book will come along. Excellent. Yay. It comes and flows. Yeah. Uh, well, we thank you very much for being with us and thank you fire tribe for listening. And if you're not down with that, wake, wake up. Good